Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, it's the election. And I'm sure you've been waiting for Plenary Session. And so we've got a lot in store for you this week. We've got a brief monologue. I've got a dialogue with Julia Marcus. She is an associate professor at the Harvard Medical School, and she's been one of the most thoughtful commenters about how to properly message around public health interventions in the age of COVID. Next, I'm joined by Anne Sawson and Elizabeth Carpenter Song. They're two researchers at Dartmouth College, and they're going to be talking about how the Northeast has handled COVID-19 and what lessons they think can be learned from the Northeast. It's a very interesting conversation. You're not going to want to miss it. And then we still have not forgotten, this is an oncology podcast. And I have David Rustler Germain, and he's from the Washington University. And we're going to be talking about CAR T-cell therapy in DLBCL. You're not going to want to miss this discussion. It's got everything you want. COVID, COVID, more COVID, and then some hemonk at the end, because we haven't forgotten who we are. And it's got four guests and six last names. You're not going to want to miss this. This is good stuff. But first, a monologue. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Well, the election is in. Well, not quite, actually. It is Thursday evening when I'm recording this, and we still do not know the final outcome, although all signs point one direction, and so we are soon going to know the presidential election. However, I do think it is worth noting that given the management of COVID-19, given the management of multiple policy issues over the last four years, the fact the election is as close as it is, is to some degree a crushing loss for Democrats, for progressives like myself. It is a crushing loss. The fact that the Senate remains uncertain, that we may lose seats in the House, it is it is a referendum that went the exact opposite way all the pundits thought it would, and all the polls, which I think suggest many broad lessons. One, these polls are deeply inaccurate. You can't poll when you have sampling errors and things of that sort. There are also a number of lessons that tie to COVID. Many people like to compare countries and the number of cases and the number of hospitalizations, the number of deaths, country to country. Well, those comparisons would be a whole lot better if the countries agreed to measure those things in the exact same way, but they don't measure it in the exact same way. And if they don't do it that way, it's very difficult to compare them to one another, but don't let that stop anyone. And now, as we're waiting for the final vote counts, the same people who brought us that excellent data science monitoring where they plotted out COVID cases and they went to Excel and they fit a cubic regression right through those bots, they are plotting out 
the deficit between Biden and Trump and fitting a line to how many votes are left. That's the kind of Excel spreadsheet crunching that is what I call real science. I think that there are many lessons to take away. One may wonder why, when many felt it ought to be a blowout, it was actually really, really close. And I think it is actually not that dissimilar from many of the issues we've explored on Plenary Session, where we pointed out that just because a narrative is popular or appeals very strongly to your base does not necessarily mean it is accurate. I took a moment to reflect about what has happened, and I thought that certainly MedTwitter will learn something from this. MedTwitter, of course, is extremely left-leaning. It is different than the ideological set point of average physicians. It is far more to the left than, say, for instance, the comments on, on other doctor forums and, say, for instance, multiple studies of doctors' political affiliations. Yet, it doesn't stop MedTwitter from believing it is the universe when it is, in fact, just a tiny planet on the edge of the universe. So I penned a series of 10 lessons for MedTwitter from the election. I tweeted it out, and I thought it would be a perfect monologue to this week. Lessons for MedTwitter from the election. Number one, lots of people think differently. Whether you like it or not, you're going to have to admit that something like 69 million people voted for this guy that many people don't like. That's a lot of people. If 69 people say they like broccoli, you really don't like broccoli, you might want to wonder why they like broccoli. Two, I think one of the takeaway lessons is that censoring or silencing or retracting opponents is unlikely to be a durable win. Indeed, we saw many instances in COVID, outside of COVID, where people wanted to censor something they didn't like. Recently, it was that Scott Atlas tweet. What did Scott Atlas say? Something like, I actually forget what he said. I think he said something like, masks don't work. Well, you know, I think that if you want to argue with Scott Atlas, you might want to point out that many people are making the argument that masks do not protect you, but protect others. And there may be a precautionary principle why we ought to do it. And as I discussed in many podcasts ago, that it might, like a foreign policy decision, be a reasonable thing to do. At the same time, there is no perfect randomized control trial that recapitulates the moment we are in. So you might want to say those things and say, yet, Dr. Atlas, we disagree with you. Here are the reasons. These are some of the sort of circumstantial data that suggests this would be beneficial, although we concede there's not the perfect study for the moment. And have a little bit of dialogue or, you know, push even harder if you feel very strongly. But having Twitter censor his tweet, I argued, was it's not good. It's not the way to win scientific arguments. In fact, it will create a massive backlash and that backlash may be deep. Similarly, I argued when the case of the case of Norman Wang, that many people may agree with his point of view, even though I actually disagree. And, and a future guest next week, I'm getting a legal expert to kind of explain this issue. It's going to be really good because I know this legal expert is very talented. So we're going to revisit that issue. And so I'm going to try to articulate why he's actually wrong now that I've talked about how the treatment of, of him was probably incorrect. So censoring, silencing, retracting opponents, which is what we saw throughout this political cycle, you know, it's not going to be durable win. It's really, it's really a band-aid on a hemorrhage. And in fact, it may may backfire. Three, shouting louder that people ought to do something may be ineffective. That's one of my takeaway lessons. I think I discussed that to some degree with Julia Marcus as we talk about something somebody said about what big box stores should do. It's coming up.
Four, I think it is okay, and in fact, we must acknowledge that policy decisions have residual uncertainty. If you really want people to believe things and do things, you should be totally honest about the fact that in many cases, there is a huge uncertainty bound as to whether or not it will improve outcomes. Five, I think people on Med Twitter would do well to get off Med Twitter and go to MedPage and Medscape. That's right, two other nouveau media posts. And go to the comments and read through the comments and recognize that they are very different than the comments you get on Med Twitter. They are, in fact, far more center, center right than they are on Med Twitter. If you go to YouTube and look at some of the comments there, you'll find that they're very different. They're strikingly different. And that might remind you, just as I think the fact that 69 million votes went in one direction and 72 went in the other, that, you know, maybe people do have differences of opinions. Six, work on persuasion rather than getting people to agree by force. Persuasion is key. So what does persuasion mean? I give a few. 6A, less mob Twitter, of course. I've written an essay about mob Twitter. I think, you know, you don't want to be piling on to people. It is not good. You don't want to be judging people's tweets. You don't want to be judging who they follow. You want to leave those things alone. That's not that important. We talked about it with Ben Mazur. Ben Mazur is a rando. As I pointed out, he tweeted something. We explained that I actually don't believe it was indicative of of what he was alleged to have done. I don't think it was indicative of bias. I think it was indicative of something else, a theme that observers were not privy to because they were not part of the culture. And yet, you know, he was attacked for it. I think that's the kind of thing people, people don't like that thing. 6B, never call someone's boss. You know, I think um, it's probably wrong, even though many people rightly disagree with Norman Wang that they called his boss and he's no longer EP fellowship director. In fact, the Department of Education is investigating that claim right now. And I'm going to come back in a plenary session and actually make the case, the legal case, why one should have disagreed with him and rebutted him. But I doubt it'll be the legal case that one should have retracted him because I still don't see any evidence that that paper ought to have been retracted. 6C, patiently explain why someone is wrong instead of implying that folks who do not see the logic of what you're saying are ignorant or worse. You see, recently I have identified after a series of investigations that one of the major roadblocks to opening schools in places with low caseload is in fact teachers unions that have put up substantive resistance to that policy. And so I have made a few comments that they are in fact looking out for the interests of their constituents at the expense of the interests of children just as police unions do that often for police officers. It should be no surprise to anybody. But I got many comments that did not actually articulate why they disagree, but were incredibly hostile. And that's the sort of comments that, you know, they're not going to persuade anyone. They certainly didn't persuade me. And it may actually be that you yourself have not reflected on this issue enough to acknowledge that actually what I'm saying is, is quite correct. 6D. Rome was not built in a day. So some arguments can be let go. Some people need to let things go. I just saw something recently that we have retracted a paper saying jade amulets protect you from SARS-CoV-2. That was in a journal. It had a title that I have never heard of, and I can guarantee very few people. I doubt even even the author's mother wouldn't have read this paper. This was a this was a real dog of a journal. It was a real trash journal. They're trash journals, and they're trash journals that are so trashy 
They've never even appeared in print to go in the trash. And that's the kind of journal we're talking about. And somebody celebrating that, you know, we got that retracted. Well, you know what? You're never going to be able to go through the world and remove or expunge everything you disagree with. You're going to have to let some things go. And that was something that ought to have been let go. Seven, don't make yourself look like a hypocrite. If you would not tweet an ecological study that is clearly flawed, if it disagrees with you, don't tweet it because it agrees with you. They were a number of COVID experts, that's what we call them. They, they alternate between when they're not on Twitter, they're on CNN, and they go back and forth with their expertise. Their expertise, of course, is reading the newspaper from the day before and regurgitating it in a slightly different format. And they cited a brilliant study from, I forget, some newspaper. And this was the study. I think the y-axis was, it's been a while since I looked at it, so forgive me if I've paraphrased it incorrectly, but you know, when something is a pile of garbage, does it really matter? But the y-axis was something like, do you know someone who has COVID? I think it was something like, do you know? And the x-axis was, of course, the percentage of people in your state who wear masks. And do you know someone with COVID? Y-axis is, do you know someone with COVID? The x-axis is the percent of people in your state who wears masks. And then each data point was a state. So it was a state-level ecological analysis. So basically it argued that like in states where people on average know more people who have COVID, fewer people in that state wear a mask than states where people on average don't know people who have COVID. More people there wear masks. So what does it actually prove? It proves that the person who did it is an idiot, but it doesn't, it proves that. And it also proves actually nothing else. It proves nothing. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I mean, whether or not the data inputs are reliable, whether or not there's a relationship, it's f plagued by ecological fallacy. To really understand the ecological fallacy, I think you need to read an article about ecological fallacy and actually play through an example where you can find the exact opposite relationship to the real relationship when you disassociate the group entity into the individual entities. And, and there's some nice examples, I think, in, I think Wikipedia has a good page on it, if, if you really want to know. But this type of data analysis is, is, is fundamentally flawed. And if somebody did that with hydroxychloroquine, this was an excellent point made on the internet, that states where people take hydroxychloroquine have less COVID, the same people, the same people who promoted this stupid I don't even call it research, this stupid figure would have mocked and skewered this figure. And the fact that they have the double standard reveals that they're a hypocrite to some degree because they do not prioritize data over a feel-good message they like. And I would also note that if one were to do an analysis of tweets, there are many things one can do to mitigate SARS-CoV-2 from distancing to hand washing to recommending people stay home when ill to not going out when you're not feeling well to limiting your social circle to wearing masks. And some people have depicted this as a Swiss cheese model. And I don't know whether or not that each slice of that cheese is equally important, but I bet if you analyze tweets among left-leaning med Twitter people, you will find that the slice of the cheese they talk the most about is the mask. That, ironically, the group they feel has made lack of masks synonymous with a political identity. That means that you, you're a Trump fan, you don't wear a mask, because he doesn't either. That they, by talking about it doggedly and disproportionately, 
are making an identity on the other side, and perhaps they don't see what they're doing, but I think they are doing that. And that, in fact, actually is less likely to lead to a durable, a durable solution on that problem. And actually, we'll talk about that with Julia Marcus. I remember what I said a couple of days ago when I talked to her. Number eight, don't tweet models that prove your point because all the inputs were cherry-picked to prove your point. So I saw this, some new, says, new study says that a billion lives will be saved if we did X, Y, and Z. Well, of course, a billion lives would be saved if you did X, Y, or Z. If you have inputted into the model that X, Y, and Z are really, really good. But if you've never measured if X, Y, and Z are really, really good, and you don't really, really know that, then the entire model collapses. So that's not really, dis that's not really honest science. Number nine, if someone doesn't do what you think is best for everyone's health, or their own. Consider that getting angry might not be the most effective way of persuading them or others. In fact, doctors do know this because I've never seen a doctor go in the room and explode in rage for someone who's a smoker. Even if, say, for instance, the smoker has young children who are exposed to secondhand smoke. I've never seen a doctor get angry. I've always seen a doctor extend compassion, offer to mitigate harm, say, you know, at least try to smoke outside, or offer to encourage the patient to not smoking and, and try to be reasonable. But I haven't seen that in the COVID, in the COVID world where the demonizing about the mask is, is, is common. Number 10, don't demonize people. I guess that's what I was running through my mind when I wrote that. Number 11, engage with folks with alternative policy ideas. Yes, yes, yes. As we discuss on this podcast, when I've had Jay Bot on and I've had John Yonides, I think people who have alternative policy ideas should be engaged with. There is a deep hubris if you think you know the best policy for a globe, for a policy that has never, ever, ever been attempted in human history. And yet many people with very little to no education in policy or policy making or decision making somehow think they know exactly what entire nations ought to do about a virus. That's a very fascinating situation. So I would say it's best to engage with folks with a diversity of a viewpoints. And I've tried to do that. And I tried to speak up about that early on, but I probably regret not doing more on that front. Number 12, don't create dribbling memos and turn policy into a popularity contest. Oh, that's a big mistake. Jon Snow memorandum. It's a bit, a bit laughable. Even Monica Gandhi pointed that out very clearly that she, she, she didn't like it. And even David Dowdy in a debate at Johns Hopkins where he was debating the Jon Snow side, he said that he didn't like how it might have curtailed debate or, or, or that sort of thing. So even he, the proponent of it, had some reservations about it. Number 13, don't say follow the science if your recommendation is science plus values. Science alone can never really prescribe policy. It always requires values and preferences where outside science. That's really true. So I'm sick of hearing follow the science. Follow the science on schools. That doesn't answer the question. There's a trade-off. There is indubitably some increased risk to staff. What is it? I suspect it's quite low based on a number of streams of diverse evidence that we've covered on this podcast. I think the Alistair Monroe episode covers him nicely. What's the harm to children? I think it's sizable, significant. And in a future episode, I think I have finally been able to book this economist who has actually done a very nice study to capture what even short-term online learning does to long-term outcomes, but we're going to see dropouts like we've never seen before. It's, it's going to be quite devastating. I think P 
people think you can get that back. You will not get that back. You will, there will be permanent damage and repercussions from that. So regardless, the answer to school's question is not follow the science. The science can only tell you what might happen under different scenarios. But at the end of the day, society has to make a value choice. And that choice is kids' interests or adult interests and how much to value each. We are, of course, making the wrong choice every day. And uh, we are making a different choice for rich kids in private school. But, you know, people don't want to learn that. People don't want to learn that. Okay, 14. Enough credentialism. Your opponents are not wrong because of the degrees they have or do not have. You must explain why they are wrong. I've noticed a strange irony that many people fault Scott Latless because he is a radiologist. Well, if you want to fault him, fault him for the things he said that are incorrect. Sure. But don't fault him for being a radiologist. Because ironically, the same people who fault him for being a uh, radiologist have found that professor, I forget her name, it's a bit challenging to pronounce, but she is a computer scientist who has written stuff for The Atlantic, and she has made a number of, you know, really, I think, prescient posts about, you know, getting ahead of masks before other people were there and some other things. And people hail her as sort of um, a polymath, a genius. But she doesn't have the credentials in the space either. <laughs> they don't they don't point that out. So it's a bit of a double standard that you only hold people up to credentialism standards when they say what you don't like. But if they say what you do like, you say that they're a visionary. That's that's not a good way. Judge them based on what they say. 15. Follow 25 people who disagree with you and don't mute them, don't unfollow, but suck it in. Suck it in. I I do this myself on the issues I really care about, like cost of cancer drugs and it's punishing. It's a punishing reminder of what is actually going on out there. And I punish myself by looking at that. But I think you ought to do that. It gives yourself a sense of humility. And don't always respond. In fact, it's best not to respond. The first rule of responding is it's never going to do you any good if it just draws visibility to the thing that was doing a damn good job of being forgotten. But that's something that people won't learn that. 16. Folks who agree with you are not good guys, and folks who disagree with you are not bad guys. They're all messy and complicated. I think it is misguided. It is a mistake to label every single person who votes for your political opponent as a bad person. It's it's not tenable. It's, In fact, it just can't be true. There are too many people that they just can't all be bad. And they're voting for him for different reasons. And if you don't want to understand those reasons, if you don't want to see how you yourself could be contributing to those reasons, well, that's that. then you're going to keep losing. And I personally, I don't like losing. So that's my bias in all this. 17. Don't find people in your tribe and accuse them of not being pure enough. You want to expand your coalition. You don't want to punish, say, a Ben Mazur for his tweet. That would be very misguided. Go listen to that episode. That was a couple ones back. 18. Get off this website sometimes. You need to get off this website. It is a poison, a poison of the mind. I don't want to tell you all the things I do, but now I tweet and I never look at it again, actually. When I know it's really going to strike a chord, I just mute it right away. And after a couple days, I forget. The, the memory on Twitter is like a squirrel with a head injury. It's not good. It's very, very fleeting and short. Number 19. If someone has a minority view in medicine, asking them why they are not publishing peer-reviewed papers is like sitting on their chest and asking them why they're not standing up. This was something that cracked me up because there was a UK professor who was subtweeting her, her colleague who works at the same university saying that he doesn't publish peer-reviewed papers. He, of course, is more critical of the downsides of lockdown. 
and and she of course is more pro the benefits of lockdown which is a debate that they ought to have had but she faulted him for not publishing peer-reviewed papers when she herself is a key peer reviewer who would reject such a paper so i guess when there's any field where 85 percent people believe one thing and 15 percent believe the other it's not so easy to publish in those fields if 85 percent of people who do genomic oncology drug research think that every patient should be sequenced try to publish an article that says they shouldn't i'll tell you i know what that's like it's not so easy it can be done but often after a delay and so if you're judging someone for publishing a peer-reviewed COVID article where they have a very limited time point, they couldn't have written it in 2017. God forbid there were no experts back then. They had to have written it more sooner than that. Well, then it would be an unfair thing to say. It is literally sitting on their chest and asking why they're not standing up. Number 20, don't confuse a tweet that gives you validation for one that advances your cause. This is a key lesson. It is easy and natural to tweet what people who follow you will like and retweet. That may give you validation, but it may not advance your cause. You need to step back and think about what the cause is. The cause is almost never the instance of the cause. In fact, instances and examples can really hurt you if they're not perfect, if they have nuance and are not airtight. You want to isolate the systemic failure or you want the perfect anecdote. I mean, that's really what you're hoping for. You want to present it in the way that the person on the fence will flip over. That is the key. All right. So I think those are the lessons I hope MedTwitter takes away from the election. I don't know if they will or not. I've got one more brief thing to talk about before we jump into the interview with Julia Marcus. Okay, I have to point this out because it really, it really is a, quite a puzzle. And the more you think about how to escape the puzzle, you realize that the escape is someplace you don't want to be. So here's the puzzle. The puzzle is real simple. People who want people to wear masks believe the following messaging is a-okay. Masks protect others, but they don't protect you. That's a-okay messaging. We have to agree. I mean, that's the messaging that's out there and people like that messaging. There was recently a paper by Monica Gandhi and George Rutherford that we discussed in last week's episode. And this paper was a hypothesis paper, New England Journal Perspective. And it argued that they, they believe that wearing a mask may lower the dose at which you receive when you contract SARS-CoV-2. So you may get a milder infection. And that may be at least one of the many reasons why the case fatality rate is declining as it is globally. So their hypothesis is that masks may protect you. Well, they received some rather scathing letters in the New England Journal of Medicine, and they replied. And the authors of those letters wrote a sort of longer article explaining that this is super, super bad. And the New England Journal, they shouldn't be putting this out there. It's poisonous. It's a horrible thing. And he, let me give you some quotes. Quote, I think that, meaning their message, Monica Gandhi's message, could encourage irresponsible behavior. Of course, people should be wearing masks, but they should also be social distancing. Masks are not the only non-pharmaceutical intervention. And then the article goes on. Gandhi and Rutherford's paper is, quote, really, really dangerous, said Brousseau, adding that she had been moved to write only three letters to the editor in her life. Well, guess what? It's also because they don't publish it. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, quote, they are putting people at risk 
by suggesting that it will be fine. You'll wear your face covering and you'll get a low dose, she said. It just goes to show what really bad science is going on out there. And Osterholm agrees, quote, what we're worried about is people getting exposed and getting infected while thinking they were actually doing something to protect themselves. So it sounds scary. Monica Gandhi, of course, pro-death. That's why she's putting this out there. But actually, the more you think about it, it's quite a paradox. Think about it. If you believe, as these authors do, that the messaging, quote, mask protect others, not you, that's A-OK messaging. Tell people, masks protect others, not you. We want you to wear a mask. They protect others, not you. We want you to do it. Do it. They want to protect others. They protect others, not you. Do it, do it, do it, do it. That's A-OK. But masks may protect you. Er, that's a mistake. That's bad. How does that work exactly? So here's what it must mean. I'm trying to think it through. If masks protect others, not you, there's some fraction of people, that's X people, they wear masks and they touch their face so much, they go out so much, they do so many other things, X, Y, Z, or sorry, Y, Z, Q, Y, Z. They're a fraction of people wear masks, X, and they do some other things. If you add additionally the messaging, masks may protect you somewhat, they may make you get less severe, you know, the Monica Gandhi hypothesis, then the fraction wearing masks, I don't think it will go down. I think it's gotta be X plus something. Some additional fraction of people are gonna be wearing masks, right? I mean, why? Because some people might be persuaded by the new messaging. If you add a third messaging that, you know what, masks is an American thing to do, maybe another fraction will go up. If you add a fourth messaging saying, you don't want to wear a mask? You, what are you, a coward? Come on, suck it up, wear a mask. But let's just go back to this. If you say masks may protect you, in addition to masks protect others, not you, the fraction wearing masks is going to go up, go up a little bit. And the people are going to go do other things. They're going to walk around, go to grocery stores, X, Y, Z. So what Ostrom and colleagues are saying in their letter is that we know for damn sure that by adding this messaging out there, that the X plus Y, that increase in mask use you're getting, is going to be less beneficial than the harm you get from the change in behavior. In other words, they are conceding that they believe there's going to be an unintended behavioral change to this messaging that offsets whatever benefit it provides in terms of more people wearing masks. If they are conceding that, then they concede that masks have unintended behavioral changes, which I thought rather clearly that proponents of masks protect others, not you. They have excluded that as a possibility. In fact, there's been a, a paper on that about risk compensation, I think of the BMJ by Trish Greenhall, that, that says that we don't accept that it does that. So what they're saying is that this new messaging somehow increases risk compensation in a way that we have denied occurs for the old messaging. Okay, so what's the evidence that that's the case? You know, So if they're gonna fault the Gandhi paper and say, look, that's just the hypothesis. You guys, it's just the hypothesis that masks may protect you. It's not their objection that it's quote, really, really dangerous? Is that not a hypothesis that the offsetting behavioral changes will more than offset the Delta increased mask? Isn't that a hypothesis? And it's really kind of a, a double hypothesis. It's a hypothesis contingent on the fact that the mask use is going to go up. Monica Gandhi's hypothesis is a single hypothesis, but this is contingent on the fact that they think the mask use will go up, but it'll be offset by the behavioral change, the bad behavioral change. Do we have any evidence that that's going to happen? No. So it's just another hypothesis. So I guess the more I think about it, if someone is a mask proponent, they believe that it will benefit people, 
and they believe that whatever unintended consequences cannot negate the benefit of the mask, then should they not also believe as necessary sequela that any messaging that is not an outright lie that promotes mask use ought to be acceptable? Or is that not the case? And okay, in response to this, there's one person who said it well. Andrew Neumer, University of California, Irvine. I have never understood this either, and I was an early advocate for masking, and I remain so. I always mask, and I encourage everyone reading this to mask. But, quote, my mask protects you as a fact, while, quote, my mask may protect me as dangerous, that doesn't process for me. Yeah, it doesn't process for me because it, it doesn't process at all. It's not a, it's, 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 it's something else going on. I mean, they may be angry about the article. They clearly are. They, they think it's bad. They may not like the hypothesis, but the reason they're giving for not liking the hypothesis doesn't make a lick of sense. It makes no sense at all. If the hypothesis, if anything, would increase the compliance with the intervention that you yourself have declared at the outset is beneficial. And you're saying that despite that, it will have unintended consequences that will offset that increase. And there is no basis to claim that. And in fact, if you really believe that, you might really wonder if those unintended consequences may offset the benefit of the original messaging, which you don't wonder at all. How is this possible? It is a nonsensical claim. So when people engage in these internally inconsistent claims, that's what I have a problem with because why can't there just be an ounce of humility in this space? I think the real takeaway lesson is we just have to have some more humility about how we, we talk about these things. And if you're going to get so heated about a hypothesis, you know, I think that speaks to lack of humility. I mean, it's just a hypothesis, man. And, you know, it's just a different way to message. And the original messaging also is something that, um, you know, is an extrapolation from available data. There's not a perfect randomized trial that proves the existing messaging. It's not been tested or proven. It's an extrapolation. And, and Monica Gandhi's offering a different extrapolation from available data. And both support the same intervention. So I think the, the objection is, is laughable and, and quite illogical and must be motivated by some other, some other thing. I don't understand. Okay, on that positive note, we're going to jump to Julia Marcus. You don't want to miss this discussion. This is terrific. Stay tuned. All right, I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Julia Marcus. Dr. Marcus is Associate Professor of Population Medicine at the Harvard Medical School, and she is a contributor to The Atlantic, who has written some of the most thoughtful pieces throughout this pandemic. Dr. Marcus, thanks so much for joining us here on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You, um, I, well, I, first of all, I just want to say I really appreciate that you taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to come talk uh, with me uh, and uh, our listenership, um, and I really look forward to this discussion. Um, I guess I have followed with interest, um, you know, your your articles in the Atlantic. Um, and if I were to kind of try to summarize the central theme of many pieces is that you're somebody who thinks about COVID-19 from the hat of a practicing public health expert in the sense that you realize that sometimes we can inadvertently use messaging that actually works to undermine the cause. We can sometimes be maybe too puritanical. Um, we can sometimes per pursue the perfect at the expense of the good. Um, that we can sometimes take things too far or push things in a way 
that actually doesn't help us but hurts us and maybe it makes us feel good to do that but it doesn't really serve the purpose is is that at all sort of for sort of a fair characterization of some of the themes of your work yeah, I would say that that's, um, that's a pretty good nutshell. And I'll, I'll say that I'm coming at this from the perspective of an HIV prevention researcher. And so I, I kind of watched the first few months of this pandemic unfold through that lens and started to see some of the things that we've seen play out in the HIV epidemic over a much longer period of time. Um, happening in this really compressed time frame. And obviously these are two different viruses and they're affecting the globe in different ways. And there are ways that this analogy totally falls apart if we really um, think about it. But that doesn't mean that there aren't important lessons to be learned from HIV and, and, you know, trying, trying to, um, not make the same mistakes that we made early on in the AIDS epidemic around, um, individual blaming and um, really just losing our sense of the, the human beings behind the virus. And, and I feel like that's some of what's happened during COVID is um, kind of just forgetting about the, the messiness and the realness of humanity and instead pursuing these, these messages and policies that um, are, are just disconnected from reality, the reality of human needs and human behavior. Mm-hmm. That's so well put. And I guess I would say that although there are many dissimilarities, there are some similarities, which is, you know, HIV AIDS, particularly in the in the mid 1980s, maybe in the few years before it even had sort of a formal, a formal uh, pathogen known as the cause, um, you know, something very scary, Uh, even even in the until the mid 1990s, I think it was a very terrifying thing. Uh, Similarly, I think many people are are, are frightened by by SARS-CoV-2. it, both of these viruses um, affected a population of people, maybe disproportionately, who are vulnerable in, in different ways. Um, vulnerable because of, you know, who they love or vulnerable because of um, socioeconomic status and race. Um, there's, it also affects everybody to some degree as well. Um, and I think the other similarity is that it's easy to say that all you need to do is stay in your house or all you need to do is not have sexual relations with other people or, 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 you know, and, and, and the problem will go away. Um, but, but it's a lot harder to think and meet people where they are and realize that socializing is something very important for human beings and sexuality is something very important for human beings as well. Um, are those the kind of similarities you see? How, what do you see as sort of this, the, the, what they have in common, what they have different? Yeah, I mean, I think um, exactly what you said. Um, there are similarities in terms of the ways that these viruses play out along inequities that that were already here and have been exacerbated by by these epidemics, these pandemics. And and also, yeah, the abstinence only approach to um, to HIV that I think we've very much seen with COVID is so harmful because it's and, and I'll say, like, this was really salient, especially in the first few months, of course, because we were, um, we really shut everything down and the message was to stay home. Um, and that, I mean, that I think made sense given the uncertainties for a, a short period of time and was perhaps not used the way that we, we needed it to be used. Um, but I don't think we really evolved that much from that, that line of thinking. And of course, now there's more nuance in the messaging around, you know, outdoors is better than indoors and thinking about a spectrum of risk. But I think still fundamentally we're coming at this for, with this idea that, um, personal responsibility will save us. Like if, if, if everyone just, 
um, did their part and behaved well and responsibly and stopped being so selfish and reckless, then this would all be over in four to six weeks. And that's such a um, distraction from the structural issues <laughs> that are um, really driving what's going on here. And, it, and also a distraction from, from the supports that the government needs to be providing for people to be able to reduce their risk. And I think we've seen something similar with HIV where it's like, you know, just a, a, you know, putting it on the individual in a way that distracts from the structural. And we see it in other areas of the public health too. And I think substance use is a particularly salient mm, one where well put, there's yeah. that same um, kind of shaming, blaming, criminalization at, that, at, that serves no purpose, that actually is totally counterproductive and causes harm. And I, and I think that's sort of a key, a key message here, which is that at the end of the day, if something is counterproductive and does not actually work to improve the goal, be it fewer, fewer cases of HIV AIDS, fewer cases of SARS-CoV-2, or um, fewer people um, using substances in a manner that, that shortens their life, if some strategy that we're doing doesn't actually make those problems better, then maybe we need to course correct and, and not keep repeating the same strategy. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree with that. And I think um, in all of these cases, what what you're um, getting at, I think, is a more, a more empiric approach that really looks at where risk is happening. And in, in all of these examples, risk is heterogeneous. It's not evenly distributed across the population or across settings or across time or place. And and let's let that guide, let that empiricism guide our our response, our messaging and our response. And I, I don't think it necessarily has. I think in some ways we've been distracted by moral judgments. Um, and certainly that's the case in sexual health, in HIV and in substance use where, you know, these are really stigmatized behaviors that um, are very easy to moralize about. And I think people moralize about them without realizing that that's what they're doing. And exactly. clinicians do it. I yeah. mean, it's, yeah. um, it, it's, you know, I've, I've, I'm working on this now as like a research agenda is how, how can we kind of try to reduce the stigma that, that patients experience that's actually driving them away from HIV care and HIV prevention. But we're seeing it in COVID too. It's not, you know, especially in sex, with sex and drug use, but now we're seeing some of that same moralizing around social contact. And instead of coming at this from a place of, um, you know, agreeing in March that social contact is essential, like going to the grocery store, or going to the pharma yeah. pharmacy was deemed essential. You know, imagine how different our our messaging and policies would have been if we'd said from the beginning, look, social contact is an essential part of human life. <laughs> Let's find lower risk ways for people to get what they need around socializing instead of like shutting down parks, shutting down beaches oh my gosh. Um, and shaming people for for accessing these low risk spaces. I mean, I think we should be doing the exact opposite, which is supporting them. people. Yeah. in yeah, exactly. It's like safer consumption sites for for substance use, like give people like, why aren't we distributing fire pits right now in, in Boston? You know, yes. just, and, and I know that sounds a little crazy, but, but seriously, if you're concerned about people gathering indoors, give them safer places to gather but, because we cannot tell people to stop having social contact outside of their households, especially for people whose households are simply just themselves. Yes, I, 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 I agree 100%, and we're going to talk about some of these examples. But, um, you know, one of the things I wonder is, are we much better than people a thousand years ago? In in the wake of a pandemic, 
um, you know, a society that we'll look back on and think of as primitive um, because they thought the pandemic was caused by the sinners. They thought the pandemic was caused by, you know, I, I mean, more, I think moralizing is almost a response of people to fear and uncertainty where they think I can, something bad can happen to me too. And if only these other people just didn't do whatever it is. Um, we just have different whatever it is these days. Hopefully, you know, uh, that that's gained a little bit through science, but but it's the same sort of just a, just a sort of an animal response to being afraid of something, I think, which is to demonize people who you think put you at risk, even if they don't put you at risk, which is something that many political parties get a lot of mileage out of, demonizing the other, saying they're the ones that took, you know, X, Y, or Z away from you, even if that's not true. Um, anyway, that's just a, just a random thought. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, this goes beyond my expertise as an epidemiologist, but I feel like there is a way that fear, you know, um, because fear is driven by uncertainty, mm-hmm. And we, we have it, we want to reduce that uncertainty and something that, and, and the circumstances are very uncertain right now. And, you know, the science is uncertain. The, the, the effectiveness of any given response is uncertain. There's so much uncertainty, even though there's less than there was six yes. months ago. There's yes. still a lot. And what reduces uncertainty? Well, it's putting the locus of control somewhere. And if, if we cannot, if I cannot um, change the course of the pandemic myself, I could at least imagine that all the people around me are ruining it for me. Yes. Um, and put the locus of control on them. And, and that makes me feel better. Yes. Um, so I think there is a little bit of, of um, people looking for something. And I get it. I, I, I have also felt fear during this pandemic that I don't feel as an HIV researcher in terms of HIV. I don't personally, I'm not personally affected by HIV in, to the extent that the communities that I serve are. And so I think there is a way that a lot of scientists are, are, and public health professionals are experiencing that personal fear maybe for the first time. And of course, that's mm. not true for everybody, but, right. but some are. And I wonder how that has affected our uh, messaging and our policies. I think that's a very astute thing, which is, you know, for many people, they have studied pandemics for years. It's the first time that this is one that may affect them, too. Um, You know, some of us who practice clinical medicine, you know, over the years, you know, with no sleep and being sleep deprived for, you know, for a long period of time, you know, we had to do things like um, use hollow bore needles and put central lines in patients with, you know, sort of uncontrolled hepatitis or HIV back before there was sort of treatments for some of these hepatitis like hep C. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that gives you some perspective of like, you know, part of the job of being a doctor is you're going to put yourself at risk. And similarly, you know, I go into clinic every week and, you know, no one, I mean, no one is being tested really of the patients and we wear masks and we do, you know, reasonable things to protect ourselves, but it's not a zero risk. Um, but you know, this isn't a zero risk job. And so, and I, I don't expect to live a zero risk life. Um, but anyway, so that just gives me, uh, maybe that's a little bit of my own bias, but I wanted to ask you about the photograph, you know, early in the pandemic, you know, if you take a photograph of a, of a beach, you can take it from many angles. You can take it from the top and you can do the bird's eye view like Sim City, and you can see people spread out on a beach or you can take it from a side. And if you take a photograph from a side, people will look like they're bunched up together. We saw very early in the pandemic when people were told to, you know, hunker down a lot of photos from the side of a beach, which makes it look like people are in close proximity. And I think those photos were, 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 I don't want to say intentionally put out, but I think the media that does preferentially show those types of photos 
is interested in constructing a narrative. And that narrative is, look at these bad people. And that's a narrative that gets more clicks. So I guess my question to you is, I guess, do you think, I mean, it's kind of, maybe it's a loaded question, but maybe you can, dis, you can disagree with me. Um, you know, did the media do a disservice in the beginning by, by, by showing some of these situations in ways that will scare people? And ironically, had more people gone to the beach, we'd probably be better off in a lot of places than had, had, they, had they done other things. Yeah, I mean, the media, it, it's a business, right? They um, are looking for people to engage with what they're putting out there. And what makes people engage? I think, um, you know, I would guess moral outrage, um, fear, uh, shock, you know, all, all of those those things that, that make you want to click on something. And those beach photos were like an icon yes. of the pandemic for months. And, th- you know, now they're not because the weather has changed, but... Um, for a while, it was like daily, and not just not just a beach photo, but these absurd captions, <laughs> like um, you know, cases skyrocketing as people lounge on the beach, you know, like that kind of thing, yes. where it's not subtle. <laughs> yes, um, and, and it's and, not, and maybe not related to the beach, but some other things. But of course, yeah, they link the two. Right, and I, I mean, there may be zero cases linked to beaches, or maybe some, but but um, probably very few. It's not it's not the reason cases are surging in any given area. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it, it even though it's I don't think we can um, I don't I, the media is like a symptom of something else. You yes. know, I don't I don't think we can say that's the source of the problem. I think they're responding to the public and what the public uh, is going to respond to themselves. There's another big symptom of a disease out there, but we'll come to that later. Um, I, 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 I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I wonder if you might talk about the fact we let people die without loved ones. Um, I've never experienced anything of that. I've never experienced it. I've never read anything like that. I've never known any pathogen where we let people die without their children being allowed to hold their hand. We let people die without their spouses being allowed to hold their hand. Um, I, I know that, you know, in the early throes of the pandemic, there was a shortage of PPE, but I bet there were a lot of people who would be willing to take that chance. That's one. Two, I bet there are a lot of people who would be willing to do the best thing they can do short of PPE. You know, use a cloth mask, use garbage bags over your hand if you're out of gloves, you know, do whatever it takes to be able to hold their loved one's hand. Was that a moment of, was that a moment that we ought to regret where we let, you know, the, I, the, per, the pursuit of the perfect lowering this theoretical transmission interfere with the pursuit of the good, which is realizing that, People need this moment. People need to be able to to be with loved ones when they die, even if they die of infectious agents. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually find this topic hard to talk about without getting emotional. Um, and and I would put this in the camp of abstinence only approaches because to me, I don't. When I say that, I don't just mean the expectation of zero social contact. I also mean the expectation of a hundred percent risk reduction at the expense of other aspects of health. It's, it's like, and in this case, what you're talking about is prioritizing safety over humanity in a way that, that I think is really, um, you know, I'm not a clinician and I can't speak to the PPE shortage and what was happening in hospitals, but to me, letting people die alone is, um, 
I can't, I can't think of a way to justify that. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I think it's sort of a, um, uh, there are things worse than death. And I think I'll put that in the camp of worse than death. There are things to fear more than death and loss of humanity is, is something. And, uh, I don't want to get too much on tangent there. Um, uh, but I, I do think that you can pursue something so doggedly, you can pursue life so much above all else that you end up with no life worth living. And, and those are the sorts of choices that I, 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 you know, there are not many things I put in that bucket, but those are the sorts of things that I say, oh boy, I might have to put that in that bucket. And I think that was sort of a terrible decision. At the time, I still think it's a terrible decision. Um, I wonder if I might pick your brain on the, the issue of moral superiority of course, which is the most visible way we know we're better than other people, which is that we wear, we're a ma- we wear a mask. <laughs> um, no, of course, I'm teasing a little bit. I mean, you know, of course, I, you know, I, I think, you know, a mask is, uh, I mean, I've, I've said from the very beginning, a perfectly reasonable thing to recommend people do, especially if you're not taking away masks from people who need it. Perfectly reasonable. Um, I, I struggle a little bit with the messaging. You know, what is the best way to message? Is it to say something like, you know, um, you're doing this to, you know, uh, to prevent you from spreading it to other people, not to acquiring it? That was, I think that's a popular messaging. I think to some degree there are, new, there are other writers who have talked about they believe that it, there ha- it has some mild benefit to the wearer. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that that's another view. There's another view that says, look, it's just, we should be pitched as a sort of, a, it's a patriotic act. I think that's the, Joe Biden has probably studied this with sort of, uh, a lot of statistical polling, and they probably find that that's the most effective message to just say, you wear this because you're an American. This is what we do for each other. Um, this is this is true patriotism. We we weren't helped by having perhaps a very visible and divisive figure routinely refuse to participate in the messaging. Um, you know, another symptom of a disease, but perhaps a big symptom of a disease. You know, it wouldn't help. It didn't help us that Trump, you know, really thwarted this messaging. Um, and, and I guess I also want to be honest and say it didn't, I mean, I think that there are some people out there who are proponents of masks who, you know, may have forgotten like what the messaging was like in early March when, you know, WHO said not to do it, where Tony Fauci was on 60 Minutes and he, he didn't just say not to do it. He said not to do it in a really strong way. And, you know, I know now he says why he really said that because he was trying to conserve. But I think when you go back and watch the videotape, it's kind of hard to believe that, that, that that's what he was thinking yeah. all along when you watch that videotape. And it sounds like, oh, boy, this guy is really selling this hard. Um, so I guess I don't know. I mean, I guess my question to you is 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 to kind of talk about, I guess, a couple things are, um, you know, should we have just admitted that like, oh, boy, we bu- we got that wrong. Like, it's OK to say, you know, we weren't we, we didn't have a dastardly plan all along. We just we just we just got that wrong. Um, is our messaging now, you know, is it is it the best messaging is is and I'll, I'll tell you more about it, but I'll, I'll let you, you know, comment. How, how are we going to solve this problem? <laughs> There's a lot there. That, yeah. was, that was a lot of questions. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that the messaging has, it, it hasn't just changed. It, it really went, not just from masks are not effective for, you know, in the community. It, it was masks could do harm. Masks may do more harm than good. And yes. that's where I think it, it really, um, like it was more than a 180. Yes, <laughs> you know, yes, it was more that. than you know, a 180. Like, yes. <laughs> it, 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 and there was no evidence to support that masks would do more harm than good. And and that also um, raised a red flag for me as an HIV prevention researcher because 
boy, do we hear that a lot in HIV prevention. I work on pre-exposure prophylaxis. Yeah, it'll encourage risky behavior, you hear. Exactly, yes. exactly. And and what drives those concerns is not, it's not a concern about health. It's that is cover, it's, that's kind of masquerading as a concern actually about responsible or irresponsible behavior. And, you know, you could say that, that that doesn't apply here, but I actually think generally when people raise concerns about risk compensation, they're saying this is going to make people, it's like an excuse for promiscuity. It's like, you know, it's going to make them think they don't have to socially distance. They're going to start partying and um, ruin it for the rest of us. So it's kind of, it goes back to that like moral perspective. So I think the messaging went further than just saying we don't have evidence that these are effective and there's a PPE shortage. But yes, also, I, I think it's... Um, I, I wish that it was easier for scientists and public health professionals to say, you know what, like, I'm revising my position on this and yeah. I, um, and my messaging was not spot on and here's why yeah. and here's why I'm changing my message now. And I actually think that goes well beyond masks. I, I think in this, in this pandemic, there has been, and maybe in general, but it just feels very visible now. This way that it's um, people are entrenched in their positions yeah. and and look for data to support their positions and and I've caught myself doing it of course and, and you know the the confirmation bias um, is so strong and the more that we can support people in revising their positions and be welcome uh, you know welcome welcome that and create an environment where that's acceptable I think the better off science will be. But around masks, I, I think now we have to recognize that some of the resistance to masks is is not just, um, you know, we, we can't we can't just say like you're stupid yes, and selfish yes, for not wearing a mask. Yes. That's not going to get us anywhere. Yes. And the politicization, of course, doesn't help. Yes. But it, it doesn't help on both sides. Like it doesn't help. Um, I, I think the politici politicization was part of what made people feel like they could shame people for not wearing yes. a mask. Yes, like, yes. And you would never see, even though we do see stigma in, in clinical care all the time, playing out in clinical interactions around obesity, around HIV, around substance use, there's still, you know, you don't expect to walk into a doctor's office and have them tell you you're a callous moron for not wearing a mask. And yet we had health professionals saying things yes. like that with, with huge platforms on Twitter. Yes, <laughs> um, I so, was so shocked. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think... Or, or the analogy I think about is like wearing a condom. If somebody found out they're pregnant and, and to see somebody like just shaming them nonstop for not wearing a condom, you'd be like, oh my God, what are you talking? You, that's, that, that's not, I mean, I, I almost thought it got to the point where, um, you know, like as, as a, one of the, one of the principles of being a doctor is, you know, if they, if they bring a criminal in and they've just done some horrible crime and they're exsanguinating, your job as a doctor is not to be judge, jury, and executioner based on what they did. It's just to take care of the person. Uh, but you saw people, doctors on Twitter, like, uh, I'm, I don't want to say happy, but they were like almost gleeful that some guy who didn't wear a mask died. Um, and I was just so shocked um, because, um, you know, there, there could also be somebody who wore a mask diligently and they got sick with SARS-CoV-2. And, and, you know, I mean, it, it's, just, it's just an anecdote, one. And two, like, no one should be gleeful that somebody is dying of this disease, no matter what they did. That's right. And the reality is, as both clinicians and public health professionals of all sorts, we, we serve everyone. And we don't get to choose the way that... Um, I, I will say, I, I think I understand the, the anger and the frustration 
that people feel toward people who don't wear masks. And I can only begin to imagine how enraging it is as a clinician who takes care of patients who are sick and dying from COVID to see people not wearing masks. So I want to say that, that those feelings are, are totally understandable. Um, on the other hand, they don't expressing them in shame and shaming and anger it's it's not an effective public health strategy and if we do take a step back and really try to put ourselves in the shoes of somebody who is refusing to wear a mask because they believe COVID has been overblown they believe masks don't work they were told in march that in fact they may do more harm than good um they see their president who they trust refusing to wear a mask i mean they're they get all their information from Fox News. I mean, whatever the reason, we have to try to to, to empathize with that. I what, think. what you're and articulating is is that person is a product of their environment. The that's way right. the way you know you we we, we some we all, I mean, there's a progressive attitude that I subscribe to, which is I don't blame a substance abuser for being a substance abuser. There, in fact, there are many criminals. I don't blame for being criminals. They're a product of their environment. It's a failure of the system that we didn't give them opportunities. That's a progressive attitude. But the same progressives who hold that attitude are out there blaming these people who happen to be born in red states and happen to be sort of in the cult of Trump, um, you know, they're a product of their environment, too. So I think, you know, is it not the same compassion we ought to extend them? I, I think it is. Um, but I will say when I wrote about this for The Atlantic and I used a particularly um, distasteful example of a person who was refusing to wear a mask very loudly. Yes. Um, I, I got a lot of pushback. Um, I, I mean, this is the guy in the Costco store. The video? No, I, oh, I wrote okay. about Aubrey Huff, oh, okay. um, former Major League Baseball player who has a, a huge platform on Twitter and said he was not going to wear a mask and um, was shamed by a lot of people on Twitter for that. And then he followed up with a video saying, I, I would rather die than live in fear and wear a mask. But wow. was, what was so interesting to me and what inspired the whole article was that he was wearing a seatbelt in the video. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> and so it's like he's not immune to public yeah. health advice. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to dissect that and yeah. also just say, look, we, as much as we don't like this person, right, you don't have to like him to try to serve yes. public health overall. Yes. And he, this is not about him. It's about how do we maximize public health? And we maximize public health by getting him and everybody else to wear a mask. And the way to do it is not to yell at him. Yes, actually. I, it's just going to harden the lines. But I, I worry that yes. it's been hardened. Um, a couple, I mean, just one thought was, um, you know, I think uh, as an oncologist, you know, we often deal with smoking and lung cancer. Clearly, there's a link. Um, never once when somebody comes in with lung cancer, do you ever kind of stigmatize them for having, you know, smoked if they ever smoked. And, and you know, often we don't really know to what degree it was the contributor in an individual case. But but I guess the other thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, ma- like, I think sometimes there's, there's like issues within issues. So like masks, I think, you know, that, that's the issue. Like, how do we get people to wear them? Fine. Um, then there's like a meta issue. And here's the meta issue, which was, I saw a doctor tweeting, um, this doctor was in, I think, Southern Ohio and the Ohio-Kentucky border. And I've, I've spent some time there. Um, and, and I know that's a, that's a purplish, reddish purple, red, very dark reddish purple, reddish purple kind of place, more on the red side. <laughs> so that's a, that's a reddish purple mm-hmm. place. Um, and this doctor was, um, and Ohio has a mask mandate. And this doctor was in a Home Depot store. And in the Home Depot store, there are some people walking around without masks. And this doctor noticed that, um, you know, the staff are not, they're not talking, they're not even engaging with these people. This person ended up speaking to the manager. The manager said, like, look, we know it's a state policy. We are told, like, we're just not going to enforce it. Like, we're just not, that's not the hill we're going to die on. 
Um, mm -hmm. and, and then this doctor was like, well, let's boycott um, this Home Depot. Um, uh, shouldn't they do this? They should, you know, these, these workers should go in. And, and I started thinking about it. And it was like, the more I thought about it, it was like a pebble in my shoe because it really was making me uncomfortable. Because <laughs> I was like, look, um, we can all, even if you agree like 100% they ought to do this, let's just think about what you're asking. We're on the eve of an election in a very politically divided country. So divided, in fact, that I read today that Walmart is, is removing ammunition and guns from the shelves, citing civil unrest. I mean, okay, that, that's like, I mean, that's the state we're in right now. It's a pressure cooker. People are armed, particularly people in these areas. They may be concealed, carrying a concealed weapon. The people who work at these stores who are working despite, you know, they're working right now in, in Home Depot. I don't know for sure, but I suspect they're not making a lot of money. I suspect they really have to work in these stores. I suspect, you know, I used to work in a grocery store when I was in high school. It wasn't a glamorous job. It was really hard work. And, you, you know, you, you earned every dollar and you, you probably deserved a lot more. Um, so, and what you're really saying is you're saying in this like heated moment, you want these like underpaid employee you know, to go up to this person and say, you, sir, are not wearing a mask. You ought to do it. Are we going to throw you out of the store? Um, I think the best case scenario is it ends in shouting, which ironically may spread COVID more than if you just, you know, pay, take the guy's money and send him out, you know, quietly to send him out. It may spread it more, ironically. Right. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is it's going to be, you know, the kind of thing that the New York Times has to make some infographic for how all the victims and the order in which they were shot. I mean, some horrible thing could happen. Um, and, and so I guess I wanted to say, like, it is so easy and natural that your first instinct in any of these situations is like, we need a mandate. We need to put yeah. these people in prison. Um, but sometimes if you take a step back and you think, like, would that actually help the cause or will that blow up in my face? And like, I guess, I don't know, I have a hard time on this situation because like every time the movie plays in my mind, I just see bad Bad things happening like maybe I've watched too many bad movies but I mean I just don't see a good outcome of this situation so I'm wondering if you might comment on like you know sometimes I don't know I don't know what I, I have no question there I wonder if you just might whatever thoughts you have I'm happy to hear yeah it. I have yeah. thoughts I mean I think yeah. what you're describing that situation is one of the reasons why mandates are not something that we need to they're, they're not a silver bullet um, you know, if, if public health works best when you just engage people and, and you get them on board. Um, and one of the other responses to the piece I wrote about masks was, um, you know, besides why are we showing compassion to these terrible people, was why don't we just mandate it? Like, why are we even talking about this? And it assumes that a mandate is going to solve the problem. Yes, it does, yes. Um, but no matter how you think about it, I mean, you could, you could mandate masks in, let's say we just focus on, public indoor spaces, um, who's going to enforce that? Is it the people, the, the low-paid workers who are already being put at risk, who, as you're describing, may be put at greater risk yes. if they're trying to enforce this? Is it the police? And then we run into all the harms that the police cause and, and the ways that they will inevitably enforce things inequitably. Um, or can we really just try to get people on board? And I'm not saying, I'm actually not saying we shouldn't have a mandate for masks in public indoor spaces. I think that that's, um, a, a, that may be a reasonable approach, but I think we have to think about how that would be enforced, what the impact is. And, and actually, is the pushback on it going to be so much worse <laughs> than, yes. than the actual, than, than the purpose it's supposed to serve? And, yes. and I think we should be asking in general as little as needed. And so I worry a bit about 
um, you know, in the past few weeks, we've seen these calls for a national mask mandate or universal mask use. And I, I don't totally know what that means. If these calls are not typically defined in terms of like, does that mean every time you walk out your front door? Does it mean public indoor spaces? Does it mean public transit? Um, but let's ask as little as needed, especially when we have a fatigued population that is clearly becoming increasingly resistant to any kind of restrictions. Let's take that into account when we make policies. And where does mask use really matter? Let's focus on that and, and design our policies around that. It goes back to this question of like, what empirically, where is the risk? And let's follow that. Well, it's a parachute. It has a hundred percent effect size. I've been told. So <laughs> no, no, I just. But I. But there are some people who said that. But I guess um, just to close on the mask, because I want to come to the fatigue part. Um, I guess I'd say, and I'm willing to take the heat for this. So I'm going to say it. I guess I would say I think it's it's done. I mean, I guess I would say like I think it's in such a bad place right now. It has been so tied to political party, which is tied to identity. It is so tied to that right now that it cannot be remedied. You can do mandates. Yeah. Uh, you. You're just going to blow it up in your face. The more you push on that, I think the best thing to do is walk away from that issue, pick a different part of the Swiss cheese model to close. That issue has been too <laughs> politicized. It's done. And I'll, I'll go even further and say um, Trump is bad on one side. There are people on the far left who are bad as well because they politicize it too in a different way. They don't see how they're politicizing yeah. it. They think they're doing the good thing. But the more you tweet about, and, and I'm on the I'm on the left. I'm Elizabeth Warren. I'm Elizabeth Warren supporter. That's like closest to my ideology. But yeah. the more you tweet, like we need to elect Biden, fundraiser for Pete, fundraiser for Biden, masks are good. The more you in your own Twitter profile wed all these issues together, mm. you're making it an identity. And now it's an identity. It will not change. I mean. Okay, I, I'll just close with it. It's not going to change. It's done. You're, it's the, the percent is going to be the percent. Um, I tell a story that, you know, I moved from Portland to San Francisco very recently during the pandemic. And I, I, had, um, I had to get a car and drive it back. And as I was driving, I left Portland at 6 a.m. And there's a guy biking up this really steep hill. And I'm a cyclist, so I know. This is like 17% grade people. This is a, this is a good ride. This guy's <laughs> cooking up this hill. There is not a soul in sight for a thousand feet in any direction. He's got the mask on cloth mask it is soaked in sweat i mean it is like asphyxiating this guy and he is cooking up this hill with this mask on i'm like oh boy that guy could lower that for a minute i mean like he's really hurting um and and you know i'm not a believer that masks raise co2 or all this nonsense but i did have to carry a box up three flights of stairs with a mask on and i almost couldn't do it because i was like okay that, so there is some it is not easy okay so then i drive out of the city i'm in you know medford oregon getting gas and it's like Mardi Gras. There's no masks. Everyone's partying. It's like there's no COVID at all. And then I'm driving to the Bay Area. As I get closer to San Francisco, the masks are coming, masks are coming, masks are coming. I'm like, this is the most politicized thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like, I know who's voting for who. Um, anyway, so I say that because, like, I, I'm really worried that that's an issue that the damage is done. But I want to talk to you about the fatigue. Um, recently, like, a reporter asked me, um, you know, like, um, what would you need to see to recommend lockdown again? Like how many cases per 100,000 would before you say you recommend lockdown again? And I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I agree. I understand the theoretical benefit that this would provide, but I guess I'm worried that we are not even in a place anymore where there is an appetite for that at any price. I mean, no matter how bad this gets in the fall, I worry that there's no appetite for it. Um, I don't know if I have my finger on the pulse of America, but I guess what I'm trying to articulate is this idea that um, 
you know, fatigue is really creeping in now. It's been like eight months. People are tired. People are trying to grasp normalcy. And I think Thanksgiving is going to be the big test of like, you know, how much of a normal life do we want again? I wonder if you might talk about like, what does it mean to be fatigued? And how do you think people are going to react to Thanksgiving? And and what's the best messaging? Um, maybe I think you, you and I will agree 100% what the best messaging is. So maybe you tell us. <laughs> Uh, what does it mean to be fatigued is, I mean, it, it looks different for everyone and is going to depend on their, their life situation and how much they've been hit by this, which is going to be really driven by socioeconomic um, context. But, um, but I think everybody to some extent is experiencing some exhaustion from all of this. I mean, even if you are, if your quality of life is high, you're still, many of us are exposed on a daily basis to, um, just endless media coverage, uh, you know, fear, it just really, um, it's pervasive. And we've been doing this for a long time now. And I first heard about fatigue, quarantine fatigue in yes. early May. Very early, and that, yes, yes. And that was like, you know, now looking back, it seems like, well, that was a mild concern at the time. And now it's like a disaster <laughs> yes. months later. It's, it, it has not gotten better. It's gotten worse. So yeah, I mean, how, how do we, how do we, um, I, I think the question for me is how do we help reduce risk where it matters most while allowing people to enjoy their lives to yes. some extent? And how do we do that as, I mean, I'm sitting here in the first snowstorm of the season before Halloween in Boston. So, you know, it's going to be a long winter yes. for some of us. And yes. I, and holidays, I mean, for for many people are so um it's it's such a symbol of social connection and and connection with your loved ones and i think we cannot tell people just don't gather we we can't and yes. so how do we help people reduce risk as much as possible and of course there are other things we can talk about too that we have not addressed like meeting people's basic survival needs and ensuring that people have the economic and social support that they need to, to distance and quarantine and isolate. And, and those are the first things to address. And then we address the fatigue because it is going to matter if a ton of people fly around the country on Thanksgiving and have multi-generational gatherings and then yes. fly back home. I mean, that that will have an impact on the pandemic. And I, I don't know the answer, um, but I, I I do feel pretty strongly that we can't just they don't gather. We yes. have to give people tools to reduce risk. And, and that I, I feel like we could be more creative than we're being about that. And I, I don't, I don't, um, I feel a little ridiculous saying this, but I don't know why we don't see, um, like beer gardens everywhere yes. with heat lamps and tents. And I mean, why, if, if really, if it's true what elected officials are saying that, Social gatherings are driving this surge, which I have yet to see data that really um, uh, convinced me of that. Correct. But okay. um, but let's say that that's true. Then it seems like we should be pouring resources into giving people safer places to gather, and and I don't see that anywhere. I've seen it a little bit on a few, like a handful of college campuses that are starting to to get it right, um, but not really seeing it in in cities for the most part, where people may lack private outdoor space and. And for the for people who have private outdoor space, give them a fire pit, give yes. them a cord of wood. Yes. <laughs> you know, like let's let's think outside of the box. Yes, you know, I I said early on that, um, well, 
to no one in particular, just to people who talk to me on the phone. But I, I said it. I said it. I said it that we should. This is an opportunity to provide. Um, you know, as a progressive, this is an opportunity to provide. Um, uh, universal uh, broadband internet. That's a yes. that's that would have been an opportunity. Two. I actually made a joke, but I think there's a lot of truth in joke. You want people to hunker down for three weeks. Make a partnership with HBO and get everyone Game of Thrones. I mean, give them a free HBO for three weeks. I promise right. you that you're going to hunker people down for a little bit. I mean, you've got a lot of good shows on HBO to get there. I mean, you know, whatever your, your thing is. But, I mean, make some entertainment available to them. I think right now you're like, I mean, it, it, it sounds outside the box, but it's not. Like, you want to have um, Thanksgiving? Close some streets. Put some heat lamps yes. up. Um, tape off areas to say, like, okay, families can only stay, you know, near their house. But give them space to spread out. And you can shout across the way, talk to the neighbor from you know 12 feet away with holding a sipping a beer i think we all crave that kind of um socialization um just to talk with our neighbors just to like get to know each other um and, and you know place that people could invest in this but i want to tell you a little anecdote that i think summarizes where we put the money um you know i used to work um many years ago in a va hospital and there was a guy who came in once i remember distinctly i was working in the emergency room and he came in and his three fingers on his right hand were numb and i was a trainee at the time I was like, well, numb three fingers. And so there's a lot of things it could be. But one of the things it could be is he could be having a stroke. And so this guy, he's a veteran, and he comes into the ER, and the attending sees him, and he's like, yeah, he could be having a stroke. Let's let's scan him. So he gets a CT scan. Okay, well, that's not enough. Of course, you got to get an MRI. And then, of course, that's not enough. you got to get an MRA with angiogram and look at the neck vessels and look at the cerebral vessels. He gets all these scans. And I mean, I don't know, um, the market value of these scans, maybe 10 grand, the actual cost to the healthcare system, maybe $1,000. I mean, there's some real cost to this, these scans. He's getting like a $1,000 workup here or $10,000 workup. And then the scans were all negative and the numbness got a little bit better. And, you know, he'd been inside. This was Chicago. He had warmed up a little bit, had a sandwich and a, and a coffee, which to be honest, might have been the real reason he was coming to the ER. It wasn't the, the numbness. It was the sandwich <laughs> and coffee. I mean, there's probably a lot of truth to that. Um, he's feeling better. The numbness is better. Um, and, and the last thing he said was, um, Doc, um, you think you can give me um, some bus fare so I can get back, uh, get back home? And the social worker wasn't there. And the answer was, um, I think one of, somebody actually gave him money out of their own pocket. But I think the answer was, you know, no, we can't give you money. Um, and I guess, yeah. I guess to me, that's a metaphor. And that was a metaphor for everything I've ever seen in healthcare in my entire life yep. in healthcare, which is that we will always pay for interventions that consolidate wealth in the hands of fewer people. So we'll pay for a monoclonal antibody for a homeless person with cancer that gives um, shareholders of Genentech an extra decimal point on their uh, dividend for the year. Um, if you want to get that same person who's uh, a, a place to live, if you want to get some old woman with, with cancer, someone to go to her house and help her um, change her, her sheets on her bed, um, good luck. You know, there's no funding in the system for that. That's not something we're going to pay yeah. for. Um, similarly, when the pandemic broke, we poured, you know, a trillion dollar stimulus. Um, a lot of that money went to Wall Street, of course. God forbid the, uh, the S&P 500 take a dive. A lot of that money went to small businesses to, quote unquote, retain their employees. Um, and a really elegant economic analysis by Raj Chetty suggests that every single, I mean, not every, but on average, all the people who pocketed that money were small businesses that were not going to lay off anyway, such as doctors practices and things like that, small businesses that had no intention of laying off. Um, so in other words, I guess I'd say like as a society, we are willing to put a lot of cash 
um, into things. We're just not willing to put cash into paying people um, unemployment, paying people if they're feeling sick to quarantine. We're not willing to put cash in making the built environment safer for people and helping the homeless population. Um, we're not willing to put cash in those things. We're willing to put cash to make sure our Uber Eats is not interrupted. We're willing to put cash to make sure our stock portfolios don't fall. Um, is this a too cynical view of how we put cash into this problem, giving it to the people who don't need it and not giving it to the people who do? I, don't, I mean, I think it's cynical. Is it too cynical? No. Um, I, the same thing is happening in HIV. I, I mean, what would really help end the HIV epidemic? Give people housing. Yes. You know, get, like stop criminalizing people for substance use. Yes. I mean, all, all of the decriminalized sex work. It's it's policy, it's structural interventions that address these inequities that will really make a difference. And instead, we want to pour money into medicines and um, and moralize about behavior. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the same. Um, it's the same show being played over and over again. And and certainly, we're seeing it in the pandemic as well. And I, it's it's just a it's a distraction. It's a distraction for things that would actually make a difference. I know you got to go soon. So last thought for you, last question for you. Um, schools. How do you think about schools? Um, how do you think about how we should be thinking about schools? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Um, just any of your thoughts on, on public schools? Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no, um, <laughs> there's no easy answer here. And first I'll say I'm conflicted as a parent. Um, I have a, a three-year-old and a six-year-old. Um, I can tell you that I don't feel like what we're doing is right. Um, I, I, I think, yes, we, we need um, to continue to try to pursue better data on transmission in schools. Um, but it feels wrong to me that I, you know, my, my, my son right now, he's six. And as we speak, he's in a paid childcare program doing remote learning at his school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So just trying to make sense of that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a parent, like something is not right here. <laughs> you know, what, yeah. what, how did we end up here? How did we end up in a situation that, you know, where the private school down the street is open for full-time in-person learning and yes. is, is doing outdoor learning and, and has like set everything up with risk mitigation strategies and they're doing just fine. And all the public schools are <laughs> um, like semi-functional. I mean, it's just, um, we have we have not um, prioritized the right things, and maybe maybe I'll just say that. I think that that's well put. Um, and I guess I, I I promised you Alaska, but I have one more question. Um, you've been doing all this writing, and um, I guess um, it, it 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 thrust you in the spotlight. I mean, um, in a good way. I mean, I got you know uh, how grateful are so many of us for having your voice in there in the mix. Um, to combat some of these other things. But anytime somebody does that, um, naturally, I would imagine that for every 999 pieces of praise you get, you probably get one piece of um, uh, contempt. Um, and well, I, I wish it was that ratio. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be that ratio in, in, in a decent world. Um, 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 and um, I guess I, I've, had, I've had some experience with this over the years. Um, 
And I guess I would say that I, I know, I would imagine that the stuff that's negative always looms larger in our own minds mm. than the stuff that's positive. Um, I once heard Malcolm Gladwell, um, you know, he was confronted in an interview of people saying like, your work is crap. And, um, um, and he said that, look, I've come to finally have inner peace, um, he, he said in the interview, because, um, you know, I'm, I'm privileged that like so many people know what I think. And he was like, and you know, some fraction are never going to like what I have to say. And I can't dwell on it because, you know, it's just going to paralyze me. Um, so I guess I'm curious, like, um, how you have felt about people who have pushed back at you. I think, you know, as an academic, we're, of course, we're grateful for some pushback, like thoughtful pushback we all take. But like when you find it like it's, it's gone too far, um, how you um, preserve your sense of identity and like don't let it affect you. Um, I'm just curious your thoughts on that. It's a really great question. Um, you know, up until May, I was just a quiet academic prep researcher. <laughs> um, and I tweeted something innocently, and an Atlantic editor contacted me and asked me if I wanted to turn it into something. And that was how I started writing. And, and by, by the way, like that piece came out, and by that evening, I was on Chris Hayes. And it was out of nowhere, out of nowhere. I mean, I just really did not expect that response. Um, and it's really shifted my way of existing in the world, having this more public facing experience in ways that are very rewarding, um, and also really exhausting. <laughs> and I am not somebody who has gotten to the place that Malcolm Gladwell has gotten to. And I, I hope to get there someday, but I, I actually find the more thoughtful pushback to be the hardest to yes, take. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I welcome it. Um, but it's, it's by far, I, I mean, the, the people who are just trolls, it's like, I can dismiss that. And the, the hate mail, I, I can laugh, laugh off for the most part. But, um, and, and of course the fan mail is lovely. Like when people say this really resonated for me, it's what makes me keep going. Um, but it's that, that thoughtful pushback where I really question, should I have written this? Am I wrong? What am I doing? You know, and, and it's, I, I think what, what helps is, um, my little circle of colleagues who are so supportive and have made me, um, stay sane, I think, during this, this whole experience where it's not just, you know, my, my experience of having people either yell at me or, or tell me what I'm writing is great, but also just watching the overall scientific discourse during the pandemic has been trying, I, I would say, um, seeing the polarization, seeing the ways that people might, I'll, I'll see two colleagues who I adore, who I, I think they're both wonderful, like attacking each other on Twitter. And, and it's so disheartening and it makes yes. me, I, I want to like step in and be like, guys, I, I, you're both so awesome. Like stop. Let's, let's critique each other's ideas and not attack each other personally. And well, um, I would say, so I even, think, I think the website is designed to bring that out. Yes, I mean, it's, it's profiting it from that. And if, if they were face to face, when you're faced, to, even when you disagree with someone, the natural human instinct is to de-escalate and make a joke and like find some common ground and have a drink, you know. But when you're on this Twitter, it's the natural human instinct is to go for the jugular and I want to kill this person, you know. It's all it, it, they've done it. I mean, I think it's intentionally designed that way. Yeah, and I think you know I'm fairly new to social media. I've only been on Twitter for a year and was not on social media before that, so I think I'm still sort of discovering this whole um, dynamic. But I, I, I think for me, it has felt like one more way that we have lost a little bit of our humanity yes. during the pandemic, and and 
So regardless of the ways that people are interacting with me directly, I think I'm also just kind of um, demoralized a little bit at that dynamic, but also sustained by the wonderful people I've connected with. And so it's, you know, both of those things have been true. I guess I just leave you with some thoughts on this because I guess, um, you know, when I was, I guess I had my first faculty job when I was 32 and nobody, I was in, I was like, I think like nobody knew who I was in the field. I mean, I'm just some random faculty member. Um, and then I was, I used Twitter and I was critical of cancer drugs and their prices. And um, I don't know, maybe I, uh, I, um, some of my tweets, you know, got some, you know, uh, in that narrow space of people who care about that issue, I think, you know, they were popular in that space, right? And so I guess um, maybe early in my career, um, you know, some reporter came to do a story about me. In, in retrospect, I probably regret that I agreed to do that because I don't know if I, if, if, if that even minor bit of celebrity was, was, was really what I was, it's certainly not what I craved. And it certainly, maybe it wasn't even helpful. And then as the years went on, um, I guess, I guess, because I'm trying to say that, like, you know, I think you've gone from zero to 60 very quickly. I, I feel mm -hmm. like I may not even be at 60. I'm at 40 miles an hour, but at least it, it ramped up slowly over five years. Um, and there was along the way a lot of, you know, people pushing back, um, uh, criticism, trolls. I mean, very inappropriate things said. There still are some troll accounts. People have vandalized my Wikipedia page. They, you know, say I'm born mm -hmm. someplace I'm not born. I mean, there are all sorts of things like that. Um, and I would say that at, when I was younger, um, not that much younger, but younger, uh, it, it, it did, uh, you know, I felt I felt it very personal. Um, it was really like, wow, why, why are they doing, why is this personal? Like, I'm just talking about mm -hmm. cancer drugs and their pricing. And like, I'm like, honestly, who gives a shit about this? It's such an arcane topic. Um, but there were people who are like that. Um, but I guess I felt like I had a, in, in some ways I felt lucky because I was able to put on armor one piece at a time over time. Um, and then um, over, over the last five years. And, and, and then now I've kind of reached a space where um, I just give you my two cents on it. Like, I, I'll, I'll never read all the comments. Like if I write an article, I will just never read the comments. I, and I, I don't know if I advise, well, I would advise you not to do it because, mm. you know, you know what your message is and you're confident in your message and people who you really respect will seek you out and they'll tell you what you've said wrong. But I don't read the comments because I think that's an unhealthy way to be. Um, and I let it all go. And, and anyone who, you know, says something that I think is below the belt, for the most part, I just mute them and let them let them say. And, you know, somebody recently came to me and they forwarded me something somebody said about me and they're like, you know, you should argue with, you know, you should correct this person or, you know, and I'm like, you know, that that's the price of somebody listened to you, what you had to say the price is someone else is not going to like it. So I, I've, got, I've gotten more comfortable with that. And then the only thing um, that what you said that really resonated with me was the criticism that's very accurate um, is the hardest. And I guess yeah. what I'd say is the way I've gotten, uh, the way I've come to, to take that in is um, I've written commentaries that I've gotten some feedback on that really did change the way I felt about it and hope, and I've written a new commentary where I will admit that. And I will say, mm -hmm. I said this and then somebody told me this and I actually agree with them and I'm going to change my entire thing. And I think that what you said in the beginning, it really fits, which is like, we should not demonize people for saying I got something wrong or I've changed my opinion about something. That's what we want. We want people to yeah. do that, especially when there's uncertainty. And I have, I mean, every single piece I've written, um, uh, which I think is like six now in, since May, every single one, there's something I, I regret, a small thing or maybe even a big thing. And I could totally write another piece about each one saying, here's what I regret about this. Um, but, but that's just what happens. I mean, it would be bizarre if we, if we wrote something and, and just it remained, if our, if our perspective didn't change on it, then we, we, we were probably doing something wrong. Mm. That's well put. I know our time is up. So, um, Dr. Marcus, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, I, I really appreciate it. It's very 
you know, I, I could not agree more with you on everything you've been saying in writing. And I think it's important um, that more people um, kind of, I guess, see the wisdom of what you're saying, because it really is, um, it, it is, it, it's really a strategy that has been tested in other public health conditions. And it is the, the strategy that ultimately is the most durable and likely to um, yield the outcome we all want, um, which is, is the strategy you've outlined. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Carpenter Song and Ms. Sawson, who are both working at Dartmouth University. I'm going to have them introduce themselves in a second. Ms. Sawson, would you mind uh, letting the listeners know what your title is there and what you do? Hi, I'm Ann Sasson, and I'm the program director at the Dartmouth Center for Global Health Equity. And Dr. Carpenter Song, what do you do there? Hi, my name is Elizabeth Carpenter Song, and I'm a medical anthropologist and research associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at Dartmouth College. Thank you both for joining me. It's a real pleasure. And I had the chance to peruse your report um, that you sent me before. And, you know, I found it so interesting. And I guess maybe we'll just start by by talking for a minute um, about, I guess, maybe one of the core things that you both are thinking about, which is um, COVID-19 has affected everybody, that's for sure, but it's particularly and disproportionately affected vulnerable populations. And you're both based in the Northeast at Dartmouth. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about who are the vulnerable populations in your area? Um, how do you think about them? And, and what are some of the disproportionate ways they've been impacted by COVID-19? Dr. Carpenter Song, she's pointing at you to go first. <laughs> sure, I'm happy to jump in. Yeah. So when we think about vulnerable populations in the context of COVID, we're thinking about the intersection of both medically vulnerable as well as socially vulnerable mm -hmm. populations. And so when we're thinking about COVID specifically, we're thinking about elders within the community, those in congregate housing situations, including um, nursing homes, of course, as well as homeless shelters, prisons, um, and we're also in our region really thinking about the overlay of social vulnerability as well. And so thinking about considerable rural poverty, particularly in our most rural regions of both New Hampshire and Vermont, um, and the ways in which that intersects, of course, with uh, chronic illnesses and underlying conditions that would predispose people to having more serious forms of the disease. I see. And Ms. Lawson, do you have anything to add there or you think that that's a fair summary? That's a fair summary. Fair summary. Okay, then I guess my question is, um, if you take stock of the Northeast, particularly with the eye towards the vulnerable populations, how do you think the Northeast has done? Have they done better than average, worse than average? What were the strengths and what are the deficiencies? You know, right now the Northeast occupies a sort of evergreen corner of many of the COVID-19 trackers. Um, this region has led the country in COVID-19 infection rates. Mm -hmm. um, it was mm -hmm. able, you know, to stem um, transmission of um, the virus early on and then also sustain um, really low infection rates um, as other areas saw a resurgence. Um, and so, you know, many are trying to understand what explains that success. And, you know, we hear various accounts. Um, some think um, that um, our success in this region was due to the early institution of stay-at-home um, orders by our state's governors. Mm -hmm. Others think that rurality confers protection. Um, now we're seeing, as we see, um, you know, rural areas experiencing the highest rates of growth across the country. I yes. think that we're starting to move beyond that as an explanation I for see. what happened here. 
Um, others see um, our populations as being rather homogenous, um, more highly educated than other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think our research tells a, tells a different story about what happened here and what happened with regard to the region's um, most vulnerable populations. And, and what is that? Tell us. So what do you think your researchers tells you? Yeah. You know, when we just to provide a little bit of context, um, when we began this research in mid-March, there was a great deal of concern about what would happen. Um, You know, our rural regions are older and on average in poor health. Um, As Elizabeth already noted, there's quite a bit of underlying social vulnerability. And adding to concern, we um, we border New York um, in Massachusetts. Yes. And as you know, um, that region was experiencing the largest global outbreak yes. in the spring. Yes. Um, many, um, many feared um, that um, we would have an incursion of residents from those states that would spread infection among our most vulnerable populations, as well as collapse our rural health system. Exactly. And, Coming to their vacation know, homes and, and buying new property. Even I was reading reports, they're just buying all your property. Who are these people? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And um, what we saw was that the region was able um, to um, stem transmission of um, infection. And we documented a range of factors that contributed um, contributed to the success that we saw in the region. Um, we saw, you know, early action um, by the states um, to institute public health measures. But we also saw that there were, was quite a bit of work done um, by our health systems, by social service organizations, and by communities um, to ensure compliance with those um, with those measures, to close the gaps in adherence um, to those measures that we've seen in so many other settings, mm-hmm. and to protect um, the region most vulnerable populations mm-hmm. um, and you know it's hard to know um, without further research um, the impact of some of those measures but um, these you know it, we um, we know that there's quite a bit of work that went in um, and I know that Elizabeth can talk more about that any further thoughts dr. Carpenter Yeah. so thinking about you know and it's interesting that, that you mentioned even the you know the the current real estate situation yes. and, and housing really has emerged as as one of the key concerns in our in our work um, housing as well as food insecurity mm-hmm. but it's very interesting you know within the region we saw the as Anne was noting the the prioritization of vulnerable populations from the start in terms of the pandemic response and with respect to populations experiencing homelessness this is really a standout example from the work in terms of of um, the state of Vermont very early on um, allocated funds to enable homeless individuals to be housed in hotels. Um, this is something that recently has been extended through March of, of 21, in fact. Um, and this is wow. a very effective um, short-term, relatively short-term strategy, but it enables those um, in need of isolation to uh, be you know, in places other than congregate settings, which is very helpful. And as we look to uh, homeless populations in Vermont versus those in other parts of the country, um, we can really see the, that this has been a successful strategy in terms of stemming infection in a very vulnerable population. Um, and so I think that's a really strong example of the way in which um, the state facilitated um, through through the allocation of funding and resources, the ability to protect and prioritize a highly vulnerable population. I see. Well, at the federal level, instead of doing those sorts of things, we were busy giving $500 billion bailouts to companies which don't need it. That's what we did instead. So that was a 
poor use of the money, one would imagine, poor use of the money. So I guess one question I want to know is, I mean, do you believe that to some degree that one of the contributors to the early success was that the people in the Northeast, you, you alluded to the fact that perhaps on average, they're more highly educated, um, but perhaps also on average, people there are more willing to kind of do what it takes for the collective good, maybe less likely to doubt that there's even a virus or that it's all some grand conspiracy, that people are somehow, you know, more on the sort of page of normalcy, like we're going to take this seriously. And so we're going to do our own part, uh, pitch in. You're nodding a little bit. Yeah. I I can jump in and yeah. then, Anne, please add to this. You know, certainly my take on this as an anthropologist has been that there is something about a kind of orientation within the region, a kind of cultural orientation yeah. toward what we might think of as, you know, kind of agency or self-sufficiency. There's a long tradition also of civic engagement. And so the traditional town meetings that we hold uh, within the state's people are very active in terms of their involvement at the local and community level. And so um, that really facilitates a great deal of trust in local and state institutions that may be different than how people are engaging with things at the federal level. Yes. Um, and I think that that has been one of the key things that's helped to enable that sense of collective action. Um, and, and it's something that we're very aware of not wanting to exceptionalize the region. You know, I think that many of the lessons that we're learning can and should be translated to other regions. But at the same time, there is something about the New England ethos and orientation that I think really facilitated rapid action. Um, there's a there's a deep kind of pragmatism that runs through the region as well. People got to work, they got together, they collaborated, and they made things happen quickly. Yes. yes. Anne, any thoughts there? Do you feel like there is this sort of culture in the Northeast? I, I would agree that there is a sort of cultural orientation in the Northeast. But mm -hmm. if we look a little bit further, we yes. also see um, that that's reflected in very high levels of community organization and infrastructure. You know, it's a cultural orientation doesn't do the work um, that needs to be done to protect the vulnerable, you know, members of the community or to organize a response. And what we documented um, was, you know, communities coming together to form mutual aid organizations, yes. dividing up. Um, their towns, identifying those that were most at risk, um, and then, you know, organizing services um, to ensure that they had food or transportation or their other needs were met. And so it's it goes beyond this notion of, you know, if, of equity as being a mindset and something that, you know, takes form in real organization. Yes. And I guess, I mean, what you what you're describing is something that, um, you know, almost shocks me to hear that people are willing to like consider the most vulnerable amongst us and prioritize their needs and realize that if you don't, um, you we put everyone at risk because that's a place of uncontained viral spread. It's gonna, you know, there's only so many walls you can build in your life to shield you from the rest of humanity. And if you really want to protect everyone, at some point you have to go out there and actually empower people um, who need a little bit of aid, especially in this very difficult time. You're nodding. You agree that that is that is part of a core um, philosophy that you have here. I wonder, Dr. Carpenter's song. Go ahead. No, I was also going to say that I think it's also something to do with the fact that our our social networks are deeply interconnected, and this is I something see. that yeah. even though we have low population density, yes. which has been one of the more simplistic yes. explanations sure. for why yeah. we've done well. 
deeply interconnected, multi-generational in many cases, and so that fosters, I think, a sense of accountability to others um, that, that runs very deep here. One of the things you talked about is ways in which trust is built. And trust has probably been built, and you're an anthropologist, you know, but, but you know, it, it trust is not built overnight. It's been built from generations and a long period of engagement. One of the things you talk about as a place of where it's built is sort of the classic town hall meetings, the, the local community events, maybe school board meetings, maybe city council meetings. Um, and you may, I guess, I'd, I don't know for sure, but I'll, it's one of the things you can answer is that it, you may have higher rates of participation in that than many places around the country where I think most of us don't even know who's meeting, where they're meeting, what they're doing. I have no idea what's going on in you know, a place like California um, and even when I lived in Oregon. And I guess I wonder if the flip side of that is, if you think, and I, and, and I see you on Twitter, but, 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 but Elizabeth, I don't see you on there too. I, don't, I haven't seen you on that Twitter. I wonder if you think that it's possible that well-meaning people on Twitter, well-meaning people, I mean, people who have the right message, to some degree, they themselves poison the trust by being overly zealous and bombastic in their rhetoric and portraying it as a world of sinners and saints. You're either a saint doing everything or you're just a sinner, a, a horrible person who don't want to wear the mask, you don't want to do what you're told, you're the problem. And 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 because it's this sort of social media, it's, you know, I, I contrast it with um, every once in a while I see a dialogue on social media and I'm like, oh my God, it escalated really quickly. And I think, what would that have happened in real life? And I was like, in real life, person A would have said the exact same thing they said. And then person B would have said, hey, you know, come on, my friend, my loved one, you know, works in that organization. Don't be so hard. And the person A would say, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it that way. I was just, I was just pushing a little too I, I'm you know of course they're good people in that organization it would it would it has, it de-escalate in face-to-face -face. but on social media it doesn't de-escalate it just escalates escalates so I guess I'm trying to ask um, if you think that actually social media rhetoric and Anne, you're kind of nodding a bit that it, it's possible that well-intentioned people who may even have the right message can actually poison trust by saying that message very loudly and forcibly and not listening to other people's feelings on it for sure. Um, you know, I think it's really important in, you know, in the context of a pandemic or really any type of response that we listen to communities when we understand, you know, what their concerns are and we try to situate any type of interventions that we're going to carry out um, in those, you know, in those communities and, you know, in the context of the values, you know, the cultural orientation, you know, the priorities. And, you know, I sometimes worry that, you um, Twitter and, you know, other forms of social media allow us to amplify messages that really are not grounded, you know, in the voices and perspectives of the communities yeah. um, in, to which um, we're directing a series of interventions. And I think masking is, you know, a very perfect example of that. You know, I think we collectively need to understand, um, you know, where the source of resistance um, to masking is and really develop messages, um, you know, that get at that resistance. And I, you know, I've, I've watched the messaging in Vermont very closely yes. and note that it's considerably different from what we're seeing come out from other places. Yes. And I think that it's been much more effective at overcoming some of the hesitancy yes. um, that we're seeing reflected in other parts of the country. Dr. Carpenter Song, you want to say something on this topic? Anne's our resident social media expert. I believe it's you're not. Are you not on it? Are you on it or not, I'm on, not it? on it? You're not yeah. on it. So your mental health is probably not at all. two standard deviations better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> 
so I guess I guess I guess I want to say um, <laughs> it's an interesting thing to me because I saw a couple things on this particular issue that maybe I'll just probe you a bit. And then we'll come back to you know your work. Um, uh, I saw somebody say that they went into a Home Depot in Cincinnati and and some people weren't wearing masks and then they talked to the manager and the manager says you know Home Depot policy is like we're not just gonna we're just gonna let that go. Um, and this person was outraged. They're like, let's boycott Home Depot. And that gets amplified massively because it's easy to boycott Home Depot for this policy. And I thought the first thing that hit me is, you know, I actually was born in Ohio and I spent some time there. Um, I don't know how purple it was when I was there, but I know it's pretty purple now. And Cincinnati, it's reddish purple. It's the reddish, reddish purple area. And I was thinking about, and I worked as a grocery store as a high school kid. Um, and uh, they made me do a lot of dirty work at that grocery store. And once they asked me, like, clean this thing, and I actually thought it was too dangerous to do. And I said, look, I don't, I'm not comfortable doing that. Hey, you're paying me $6 an hour. I can't, I can't go clean that thing and maybe get crushed to death in this machine. Um, and I thought about the person working at Home Depot who's probably getting paid like $7.25. And what you're basically saying is, you know, on the eve of an election where we have like perhaps the most divisive politician of our lifetime um, and we have a populace that's torn themselves apart on so many issues and this divisive politician has planted his flag on this stupid mask thing where he wants to, for whatever reason, not set a good example. Um, and, and many people have followed in suit and they see that as part of their identity. And you're asking some like maybe 19 year old kid who's getting paid $7 an hour to walk up to this person at a Home Depot in a state that's as red as they as red purple as they come and tell this person to put a mask on. And I'm like, that is not going to end well. And I pray that that kid doesn't do that because I worry about that kid's safety. And I guess what it makes me think is that, you know, in a pandemic, the perfect can be the enemy of the good. Like in the perfect world, we're all in our own rooms for 21 days and we don't talk to each other and then the virus will go away and then we wear masks and we do everything perfectly. But the reality of life is it's messy and you have to meet people where they are and they're not always where you want them to be. And 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 if you push for perfection doggedly and absolutist, um, you may end up achieving less than what you could have if you asked somebody for a little bit less and asked for better, not perfect. Um, any thoughts on that? and maybe how it might relate to Northeast? And you're nodding. You got to spill your guts. You got to tell tell us what you think. Why don't you go first with kind of from your public health perspective? So, you know, I certainly think um, that there's a real need for pragmatism over perfection and thinking about the response. Um, You know, and I see this come out around the messaging um, around masking and other public health measures here. You know, there's been a lot of focus um, in the setting on thinking about public health tools um, or public health measures as tools to achieve other goals rather than focusing on public health measures such as masking um, in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I frequently watch um, the language that's coming out of the political leaders here and they say this is this is a tool to protect the um, to protect our economy to safeguard the gains that we've made and I think that that reflects a real understanding of yes. what the priorities are as well as what some of the impacts of those measures have been and so I think that as we look to other settings and perhaps a possible reset of the response we really need to understand um, you know what are you know, what are Americans' real concerns? And those concerns may vary considerably across settings. Yes. And what's the messaging that we need yes. um, to deliver that really uh, demonstrates empathy um, yes. for, you know, what their lived experiences through this pandemic yes. are, but also, you know, calls them to action 
you know, to protect others in their community. Um, I didn't, I don't see those things, you know, as at odds with one another at all. No, I so much agree with you that, you know, I, I've always believed, uh, and I, you know, I, I grew up in Ohio and Indiana, and I always know that people will, are willing to do the right thing, um, you know, if you, if you persuade them why that's benefit, but they're never going to do what you tell them if you call them an idiot for how they ha- or view the world, and, and, and you call them wrong for feeling pain and suffering, which a lot of us feel and, uh, and are. Dr. Carpenter Song, um, any thoughts on this issue or, or the other thing I'm going to ask you about is ways in which the, you could have done a better job in the Northeast. That's my next question. But we could ha- talk about this for a minute. I think, you know, one of the things that I wanted to pick up on yes. and what Anne was saying is, you know, the, the real need for a continued call to action. You know, I think that's something that we're continuing to see reporting on even, you know, as recently as this weekend is, you know, the idea of, of the fatigue that is setting in um, and and the sense in particular of, you know, ways in which we can, can, you know, we need to continue to empower members of communities to really see that the actions that they're taking on a day-to-day basis are going to contribute to the trajectory of of this pandemic, yes. right? And really clarifying that for people. It's something that Anne and I talk a lot about and, and we worry a lot about um, is a sense of kind of inevitability and particularly as winter is coming. Um, and what are the ways in which we can disrupt that sensibility? What are the ways in which, and I think that's one of the lessons that we see you know, as within our own region is, you know, the, the opportunity to to take that sense of of agency, to take that sense of empowerment, whatever language you want to use here, but to really think about how people have embodied that sensibility that they do have a role to play in this. Um, and that's and that's a lesson that we would hope um, could be translated more widely. I think we're really at an inflection point now with respect to a sense of um, a sense of fatigue or even dread yeah. setting in, I think, as as winter approaches. Um, and yet, we know that that trajectory is not inevitable, and that we we do have a role to play in this. Um, and I think another another you know related point would also be um, you know to to your point about kind of um, perfection. Um, being the enemy of, of pragmatism as well as you know really thinking about our intense desire for the biomedical solution in the form of a vaccine. And I think that that can overshadow what is possible now, today, that people can do in the context of their everyday lives to stem um, the the spread of infection. Um, And this is something, and certainly not to say that a vaccine is is perfection, we know that that's not the case, Um, but I do think that that, you know, really can shift um, our understandings if we we move the focus away from that and much more toward the everyday and the quotidian efforts that we can all be a part of um, in order to change the, the trajectory. I think that that's so well said. And one of the things that's bothered me that I've had a difficult time articulating is that it feels to me like many people are like, uh, their sort of philosophy is just hang in there until this vaccine comes and then it's all, everything's good. The truth is, even if it works the way it's been powered to work, it's not, it's not powered for 90% efficacy. It's powered for 50% efficacy with a lower bound confidence interval of 30%, which is not, which is not, not perfect. I mean, it's good, but it's not perfect. Um, and it won't be given to everyone on day one. It's going to be months and months, maybe even a year to give it to enough people. Um, so we're still going to need to do these things. They're not going to go away. And 
And also, God forbid, they all fail. They don't work. I mean, we should never assume that it's going to work for sure. So I think when I see that sort of language of just hang tight until it comes, it troubles me because it, as you point out, I think it, it, it minimizes the agency we have and that these quotidian things really do matter. I think you, you put it so nicely. And you had something you wanted to add? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that the calls to wait until there's a new vaccine or even that there's new political leadership in yes. Washington is really the latest in what Ed Young describes as this sort of serial monogamy of solutions. <laughs> you know, we've heard from the start calls for massive testing regimes, contact tracing yeah. and everything else. And while we need better public health tools and, you know, we're all well aware of um, the failures of leadership and um, the public health response yes. in this country. I think we need to be very careful about sending messages that disempower communities um, that make it seem as though, um, you know, the trajectory of the pandemic is really something over which they have no control, um, that, you know, its impacts are you know, out of their, completely out of their control. You know, we need to really think about what is the messaging that we can deliver to communities that empowers them to take action with the tools that they have. And, you know, really right now, the best tools that we have would be, you know, those um, social distancing measures um, that we know have been effective in stemming transition and in our collective action to really blunt um, the impacts um, of the pandemic on social and economic well-being. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if we might talk a minute about vulnerable populations and particularly the youth and schools. Um, I guess I would say, I mean, I don't know if you listen to this podcast religiously. I doubt you do. And I don't blame you because it's long and dull. Um, but I guess one of the themes that we've explored a lot is um, schools. And I've had a lot of experts on from Europe and and and, and who talked about transmission. And I guess one of the things I, I, I have to take my hat off to Europe, and I think we all do, is that they have decided that schools are the last thing to be stopped and the first thing to reopen if anything is going to be stopped or stopped or reopened. It's the most important thing. In the U.S., I think this, this crisis has highlighted uh, segregation uh, like we've never seen, where everyone I know who's a rich doctor, and I know a lot of rich doctors, I'm not a rich doctor, but I know a lot of rich doctors, um, who I went to school with long ago. Um, and they're all got all the kids in school. They're all there. They say, yeah, it would suck if it would really suck if there was no school. But thank God I pay for my kids to go to a school. And if that and if I and if the school closed, I'll find another school. I'll pay whatever it takes to get my kids in school because they think it's important. Um, and I think they need it because they have to go to work. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I've been struck with the, the public schools, which, um, even in communities with very low transmission rates, like we see in the Bay Area, there's just been a total lockdown of many public schools. And the public schools are, you know, often the only source of a hot meal for these kids, often the only place where someone's going to find a bruise on their chest. Um, and it really, and, and then there's no, there's no other service. We're not like creating a service where we're going to knock on doors and check on kids as like some backup plan. We just abandoned them. And, and so that's uh, troubles me a great deal. And, and it, and the other thing related to this that troubles me is that my progressive colleagues, the people who I used to count on for being progressives, um, who to see that this is an inequity, they're some of the most ardent proponents of staying, keeping schools shut down while, while we open I mean, I don't think they believe this, but the reality is we're opening a lot of foolish things like bars and, and strip clubs and all these other things that should definitely be below schools. So I guess I wonder, how are you thinking about schools, dealing with schools, thinking about the vulnerable community? Is the Northeast doing better than the rest of us? What's going on there? Yeah. 
So, you know, like other regions in the spring um, in New Hampshire and the communities that we're working in in New Hampshire and Vermont, we also saw um, the school shutdowns and, um, you know, with many of you know, the, the concerns that, that you raise in terms in particular around nutrition, um, school-based nutrition, as well as um, reports of you know, concerns regarding child abuse and neglect going unreported. Um, and this was something that, um, in addition, the shift to remote schooling in the spring was very problematic in our rural regions because of the lack of broadband access. And this is something yes. that became a huge equity issue for us. Um, in our most in our most rural communities, is um, you know kids not having access to appropriate technologies and and they couldn't connect from their home environments. Um, and so this is something that we were very much tuned into um, in the early phase of the work. Fast forward to the fall, uh, most of our communities in the region where we're working um, are, are reopened. Um, and uh, this is something that we you know, are continuing to, to monitor and to see when, you know, when cases are, are coming up to understand how schools are responding to this. But given the, the low rates of transmission um, that, that we've seen within our communities, our schools have been, have been able to successfully reopen thus far. Um, and I'd love Anne to elaborate a little bit in terms of kind of thinking about um, what you were discussing earlier in terms of the trade-offs and trying to explain to people about the need to adhere to public health measures in order to do the things that we all agree are important, like have our kids in schools. You know, I think we've really seen our schools as emerge as leaders in the public health response. Um, the national conversation on schools has really focused on safety in the classroom versus what happens in the communities. And we all know that transmission at community level is really what's going to drive, um, you know, virus into classrooms. It's not the classrooms that will drive virus out into communities. Can you say that data. again? Um, I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. I mean, say that one more time. I think you're right. That's uh, my reading of all the literature has reached that conclusion. Would Say that again. That's just so important. That's just my summary of everything I've read. Yeah. Yeah, many accounts, you know, have really centered on the roles of classrooms um, in driving um, a virus, virus transmission um, in communities. And we really know that what's most important is what happens at community level. And we've really seen our um, schools across the region emerge um, as public health leaders. Um, we've heard um, school leaders across the state call on their communities to, um, to redouble their efforts um, to keep um, to keep schools safe. Um, there was a leader from a school um, district in Montpelier um, that um, that wrote, you know, we need to trust that every single person in our community will do their part to keep our lives and our children's lives safe. Safe, and you know, in the context of reopening, when there was a great deal of concern around, you know, what would happen, um, you know, whether we would be putting um, our kids, you know, and our teachers um, in the way of harm, I think that this did a great deal um, to sort of reset our thinking around how we needed um, how we needed to respond as a community, but also, you know, to calm nerves, um, you know, as we as we you know we began the school year here. That's so well put, and that's such a great quote. Um, I know we're gonna we have a hard stop, so I just want to give you some final thoughts and and I'll let you have the last word. I guess um, I, I I am struck by everything about how you're telling me and what you're telling me 
makes me really like wish we all lived in the Northeast. I mean, you're, you're painting a, I mean, it's not a perfect picture. This is a, this is a challenge that everyone's facing. There are no winners in a pandemic. Uh, we just lose less, but you are losing the least among all of us who are losing a great deal. And I guess I, 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 I don't know if I can put my finger on everything and it'll be take decades for this to come out. But I wonder if you might think about this as a theme, which is um, we are increasingly politically divided. We're increasingly frenzied and chaotic on social media and Twitter. Um, I don't think that's confined to just one side of the political spectrum. I think it's on both sides and it's getting worse and worse. And I believe, I haven't proven, but I have a feeling that some of the root of what drives this division, hatred, dislike, not seeing each other as people, but as rivals, is that the ladders of society, the rungs of the ladder are so frayed and so few that so many people are suffering. Uh, the average household income has stagnated since the 70s. The real purchasing power in the average household has stagnated. The rich have gotten richer than ever before, hoarding so much wealth, while the poorest have nothing. I saw some statistic like the top 30 people have as much wealth as the bottom 130 million people. Um, and you take a society like that that's just been squeezed, where you have hundreds of millions of people just squeezed for decades, not living the lives that their own fathers and mothers lived, you know, lesser lives with more with more challenges. You squeeze them, you take away their education, you push them in this way, as as our policies have, from Reagan economics to the present. Um, and what that leads to is, it leads to people really do feel hurt, for good reason. And it's very difficult to put your finger on who's hurting you. And it's so easy for some smooth-talking con man to tell you that it's the other, that it's these people who are different color than you, different race than you, who worship different gods than you. They're the problem. They're the ones who have screwed you and I'm going to stop them. And, and, and then you buy into that whole narrative and you don't see the world clearly. And it's really hard to articulate that the thing you are being screwed and the thing that's screwing you is our messed up policies that have further squeezed the blood out of you so that the richest people can have more money. And I think in the Northeast, perhaps you have less of this pronounced income inequality and segregation of your society, there is more of a collective. And so you're willing in times of crisis to think about who's going to take care of these people. Let's put them in a hotel. You're willing to say schools matter, not just for my kids, but for their, for everyone's kids. And we need to prioritize that. And so I think that maybe you all are in this protected cocoon of where these problems, which are, have helped, have hurt us all, maybe have hurt you less, or I, I, maybe I'm doing a bad job of articulating that. But I think I think the root here is a deep root that goes back 30 or 40 years, and it's why the real reason this country has been torn apart by the pandemic, in addition to the inept leader, it's why we got the inept leader in the first place, because people are hurting and no one has really helped them in the way they need. I'll give you the last word and then you got to go. Any thoughts? Well, I mean, I think I, I would be I would be cautious, though, about characterizing the region, you know, as as a kind of protected cocoon in that way. I think, you know, I've, I've worked on issues related to housing insecurity and poverty in the region for many years. And, you know, and we see, in fact, tremendous inequalities and tremendous disparities in terms of in terms of wealth and particularly within our within our region here um, around around Dartmouth. And I would say so I, I, w I would be cautious about that. I do think it's a really interesting empirical question, though, in terms of um, how people see themselves relative to, to others within, within the region. Um, I think instead, perhaps, it is something to do with traditions of participation. 
Um, there's also something to do with the, it, the smaller scale communities. I do think is it plays into this in terms of a lack of anonymity within the region, fostering a sense of accountability, fostering a sense of neighborliness um, in terms of how people act and, and treat others within their communities and those outside. Um, so I think that those are things that help to temper some of the um, the, the kinds of, you know, real disparate um, reactions that we see across the spectrum, as, as you were suggesting, I think that there is a, a degree to which things are, are, are tempered. And what would you add to that? Yeah, I'd like to, for us to instead, instead of exceptionalizing the Northeast, I'd like to see it as our most powerful counter argument to the dominant narrative that poor outcomes are inevitable. Um, that communities across the country, you know, can't change course at this stage of the pandemic or that we need to leave vulnerable populations behind. I think we really need to look at the strengths that are emerging from so many communities across um, this, you know, this country and think about how do we build on those unique strengths, which look really different um, across different settings. And then we also, I think, have to articulate a radically more aspirational agenda for how to address some of the underlying inequities that have been revealed by the pandemic. I think it's not enough just to kick our heels and up and say, you know, there's really been a failure of this administration. I think we need to look beyond um, it, both in terms of thinking about the reset for the pandemic response and how we can do it better, but how we can begin um, to address so many um, of the inequities um, that have been laid bare over the last several months. That's well put. I think that um, the next decade will be um, an opportunity for a really dramatic progressive platform or a really horrible despot. Someone's going to seize the the vacuum, and I hope it's the right the right one. But thank you both for doing this. This is really terrific. Thanks so much for um, discussing these issues, and I uh, really appreciate your time. I know you have a hard stop, so I got to let you run. Um, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thank yeah. you so much, Renee. All right, I'm back in plenary session here for Journal Club with a Fellow. I'm joined by David Rustler Germain. Dr. Germain is a second year hematology oncology fellow at Washington University St. Louis Hospital. He is an MD PhD from Washington University St. Louis, and he did his undergraduate at Stanford University. He is a budding bone marrow transplanter and lymphoma doctor, and he's a friend of this show, and he's joining us here to talk about CAR T. Dr. Rustler Germain, it's a pleasure to have you here, sir. It's a pleasure to be here, Vinay. Thank you. This is the big stage. This is the real plenary session. This is where careers are made and lost and broken. I want you to know that. No pressure. That's good. No pressure. The coffee here is cheaper than the plenary at Ash. <laughs> That's true. That's a, quite a scam there. So we were talking a little bit before we came on. We're going to talk about car teas and we're talking about a new product. But before we get to that, we're talking a little bit about your background. So you did your PhD in a very famous person's lab, Tim Lay. The sequencing yeah, right. guru. Yeah, so um, I joined the lab right around a, a TCGA project uh, timeline uh, for AML. And I, I did not participate in that, but really followed up on the DNMT3 mutations and some of the molecular biology and uh, uh, with, with that. Um, and then that really spawned uh, my BMT interests and since then have moved a little bit towards lymphoma as well. Interesting. So... 
What happened to what happened to leukemia? You're not a leukemia doctor anymore, huh? I am a leukemia doctor. Um, I think I like a lot of the uh, both indolent and aggressive lymphoma management just as much. Um, and wanted my postdoctoral training to be a little bit um, more outside of the myeloid sphere, so I've moved a little bit lymphoid for my postdoc research with Todd Feniger. It's a much better. It's a much better lineage. Nothing a, <laughs> nothing a good wallop of steroids can't fix. That's what I like about it. So, we are going to talk about a new paper. This is out in The Lancet. Why don't you tell us about the paper we're talking about? What's the title of this paper? So, this title, uh, this article is titled uh, Lysocaptogene Maralu Cell, or Liso Cell for short, um, for patients with relapsed or refractory large B-cell lymphomas. This is the Transcend NHL 001 multi-center seamless design study um, out just earlier in September here. Multi-center seamless design study. That yes, sounds good. Seamless. That sounds good. I think the seamless is a little bit of a cover-up for phase one with some <laughs> nuanced outcomes analyses. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, but I know. 14 domestic yeah. centers here. Seamless. Yeah. Seamless means that we just kept running our phase one into an expansion cohort seamlessly. And, yes, and, pretty much. Yeah. And multi-center. That's good. The only word I don't hear in the title is randomized and controlled. I don't hear those two words. Are they missing? No, they are missing. Um, and for the number of patients, over 300 enrolled, and um, sort of the outcomes claims, I think it's fair to um, ask for, for some of those features. But those studies are pending um, in the second-line setting for lymphomas with this product and even in the front-line settings. Um, or planned for some of the other CAR-T products. So we'll see. We'll see. I keep a running list of all the randomized controlled trials of CAR-T that have resulted any malignancy. Guess how many things are on my list, Dr. Russell Germain? It's an empty folder, I see. It's an empty folder. That's right, my friend. That's right, my friend. But there's one good thing about these products for lymphoma. In contrast with multiple myeloma, in multiple myeloma, they have no durability. Everyone will eventually relapse. I have not heard of a single durable product. But here... At least we'll agree there are some people who have a durable response. Fair to say? Yes, I would agree with that. And I think there's great promise here. I think how we uh, integrate this very new type of agent into um, treatment paradigms for either leukemia or lymphoma, um, it's complicated. And it's going to be expensive, hopefully not too expensive, but um, these are not the oral TKIs that we might be used to, nor are these the cytotoxic uh, intravenous chemotherapy agents. It's a very different structure of trial and development um, and payment even. You get, the, you get a mix of both. You get the cost of an oral TKI, except maybe two years of it all at once, and you get the toxicity, the acute toxicity of the most potent cytotoxic drugs. It's, so it's a really, it's got the best of both worlds, doesn't it? Yes, pretty much. Pretty much. But why don't you, okay, pull up your slides. Let's go through this. You take us through what do you think is the important takeaway points here. Transcend NHL 001. So um, let's give your listeners, um, our, listen, our listeners, a bit of background yeah. for CAR-T agents. So these yeah. are autologous products. Um, you need to have a phoresis line placed. You need to get a, you need to undergo phoresis. Your cells then get shipped to a manufacturing facility, um, often in another state. And sometimes it's fresh product, sometimes it's frozen cryophoresis uh, product. Then the manufacturer uses either a retrovirus or a lentivirus to introduce this chimeric antigen receptor into your T cells. 
um, different agents, AxiCell, Tisa Cell, et cetera, which are uh, Yascarta and Camraya respectively utilize the same um, SF, uh, SAFV fragment um, to recognize CD19, but different um, intracellular co-stimulatory domains, either CD28 or F41BB. And we can come back to later why that matters. And so then yeah. over a, the course of days to weeks, these cells are expanded uh, with different combinations of cytokines and bead-based methods. And then the cells get packaged and shipped back to uh, the administering facility um, when, where the patient gets lymphodepleting chemotherapy, typically fludarabine and cyclophosphamide, um, roughly days five to three prior to infusion. And then you get walloped with your new product. And then... And then the only thing that follows is cure. Happen. A lot of things happen, like cure. Uh, I got a few yeah. questions for you. You have a you have you have a lot of doctorates, so you're the right man to ask. Here are my questions: retroviral and lentiviral uh, transfection. Uh, where's my CRISPR Cas9? What's going on here? Um, those are under development. I think what you what might be alluding to is that these were developed as early as like 2010, 2009, Steve Rosenberg, all the people at the NIH, um, Carl June, et cetera. So these products were really built in NIH funded labs years before uh, human uh, application of CAR uh, CRISPR were possible. I see. So I would not be surprised if in less in fewer than 10 years, these are not the products we're using and instead um, we're using products that are have different uh, car loading methodologies like you're getting at. I see. And then my next question is, when you take a bunch of these cells and um, you leukophoresis them and then you squirt all these uh, lentiviral transfection things, and, and not every cell is going to get the, um, not every cell is going to take up the, the construct, uh, the construct uh, 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 that you are inserting. Um, and then when you expand them, how do you know you're only expanding the ones that have been become chimeric? Uh, and not the native, um, native T cells. Yeah, so that's a great point. Um, they're not Selected. 100% purified in I any see. way. They're not. And the different products are, um, you know, sort of calibrated um, and standardized based on bulk cells per kilogram of the patient versus a certain number of CAR cells. Different patients might receive technically slightly different numbers even um, within a certain uh, margin of error. And then this study here actually explored different amounts of a fixed ratio of CD4 to CD8 T cells. There's no flow sorting or GFP marker that really um, makes these a truly homogenous population. Um, the expansion phase with the um, cytokines and beads do lead to ex ex like T cell selection, of course, T cell expansion. But yes. Um, you're right. This is a. This is. No, I don't a, know if I'm right. I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just asking. It isn't a. Just, it isn't a it's, it, this is not a clonal product. We can it's put not it a clonal product. So it's, it's, it's possible product. that some some T cells that are being infused do not are not chimeric T cells. There's some T cells in there that are just regular native T cells that have been expanded and infused. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know the percentage. I don't know if it's I one. See. I don't know if it's more than ten. Um, I don't know that question I see. and answer. But That's good. there must be some. And then I guess the other question would be, um, um, when you expand them. Um, do they count at the end? Like, do we know, like, you know, with bone marrow transplant, we often know a count of, 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 of pluripotent stem cells that we're putting back in somebody. Uh, yes. do we have a count? Yeah. 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 So, um, the bags tell you the count and there are patients who they can't make a product for, for this reason. There's just not it, enough, they can't get, um, not enough cells out the other end. Yeah. 
I see. Have you done this kind of work in the laboratory? This kind I of, don't do kind of car wet lab research. No, we I have see. actually car and K-cell experts in our lab. Uh, I see. They love the those NKs. Been, yeah, that's the new people thing. People have been, they've been, ban- they've been banging on about that for a lot, few years now. I'm not, uh, yeah, yeah, I keep hearing that. So I, I um, listen to and give feedback on that, but I don't personally I work on I that. I see. I'd love to know what these beads are about and what they're doing there. Okay, okay. I have a vague idea of what you're doing. Okay. And then what I know is um, the other thing that's important to state is if you take a bag of uh, whatever cells, but especially T cells or pluripotent stem cells, and you just pour it in someone's vein, that body is going to fight those cells away and kill a bunch of them. So in order to the body not to kill them, you got to give them some lymphodepletion to basically beat up the immune system so that we can slide this in without it being a tr- treated like a foreign product is a foreign body is, is that is that accurate yeah that's right i mean these patients when they get their flu sci their you know their alcs plummet um, yes. i think what's really interesting is that uh there have been post car t infusion studies uh where they take uh, patient sample biopsies of actual lymph nodes that had evidence of disease previously and the CAR T cells themselves make up less than 10 or even sometimes less than 5% of the total T cells in those lymph nodes. Really? So it's not like you are now truly in some T cell or B cell aplasia state. Um, you still have a lot of lymph node resident T cells. Um, That's fascinating. Still contributing to the immune response. And it's it's their interferon gamma, their um, activation that... Um, that's such a, a misnomer. Unfortunately, larger role than the CAR T's themselves. Yeah. What the There's hell? There's a lot that's of not, a bystander that's, effect. It's but that's not lymphodepletion. That's lympho slapping. That says you slapped a few lymph. <laughs> you know, there's still a bunch of lymph, uh, yeah. regular T's. What the, what the hell? Yeah. I didn't know there's that. a great. There's a, there's a nice that. short paper, uh, JCI Insight, um, and I'm forgetting. I think it was the Yescarta, um product where they they looked at this and they looked as early as five to thirty days after CAR T infusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were plenty of lymph nodes even where they couldn't find the CAR-Ts after the fact. Um, I think you have to use the full generic names of the products for the remainder of the show. I don't think we can use brand names. Sure. Axis, is AxiCell okay? No, no, no. Not even the abbreviated one. You have to use the... <laughs> <laughs> then I'll close my laptop. <laughs> Ah, I hate these. I hate these terms. I mean, this is just so hard to pronounce. What, let me let me try my best. It is a lisocab, lisocabtogene maralucel. Lisocaptogene Marilusa. We wouldn't get far if we had to say that every time. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. This is good. This is terrific. Okay, so let's go. Let, go to your next slide and tell me. Yeah. Tell me more. Um, I, I never learned so, this. So I'm yeah. So I think a good background is to know the two other landmark yes. CAR T studies that we would compare transcend to. So yes, Zuma one is the study of Axi cell, and yes. I'll say yes, Carta with that. Okay, um, fair enough. Yes. That is yes the, to Cartes. Um, yes to Cartes. Yes, Carta. Yeah. And um, okay, so that's uh, Zuma One Axi Cell. Okay. The Kite Gilead product, and Kite that Gilead, study, yeah. um, you know, as you can enroll the enrolled slash infused roughly 100, 110 patients, um, observed an overall response rate of eight, roughly 80 percent, with almost a 60 percent CR rate. Good. Um, I mean, I think. That is all with the asterisks of median PFS of six months. So how do you how do you do how do you get there if you have a sixty percent CR rate? And as we'll get at, you know, that means that PRs are are pretty much short lived if they if they last at all. 
Yeah. Um, and even some and CRs must be short-lived to get that median PFS of six months, A, a right? fraction of them, A yes. fraction of them, right. A fraction, yeah. And then I guess one more thing that's worth noting is, you know what's a lymphoma therapy that had an 80% response rate and a 60% CR rate? Promacytobomb. Promacytobomb, yeah. back in the original... That's the good study, stuff, yeah. you know, if they had just, just keep testing it, it was going to beat chop. Okay. But so I guess the point yeah. is that those are robust response rates. We've seen them in lymphoma, but that's, that's a good response rate. Granted, yeah, so th the, yeah, the denominator are people who got cells, not people who signed up for the study. Yeah. So, I mean, we can, um, we'll, we'll keep touching back on this point that it's a multi-week process to get your mm. drug in this context. Yes. Um, you need to be referred to the right center. You need to be evaluated both physician-wise, testing, um, and a social work evaluation, which is all a separate appointment. Yes. Um, and then eventually your cells have to be successfully made and then administered to you two to three weeks later. Yes. Um, Zuma-1 did not allow bridging therapy. So ah. these had to be patients, as uh, as you know, that could did not even need... Um, higher than a certain prednisone equivalent of steroids, uh, rituximab or radiation between their prior relapse. Um, I see. So that is called the uh, indolent biology selection filter du jour, is that uh, you can't get any treatment and you can't take steroids to take the edge off that lymphoma. I see. So to make it to Zuma 1, I see. That might explain why the response rates are higher than Juliet, huh? Exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, Juliet is uh, the TISA cell or Camryo product. That one is also approved for uh, in that BALL setting. Um, and there the overall response rate was 52%. Again, a high CR rate of 40%. Um, That's a tisagenlecalusal. Yeah, exactly. Tisagenlecalusal. Wow. TISA cell as much be the better. Okay. Yeah. And I think, you know... We can we can fantasize about a day when two CAR T products would be compared head to head, um, but it you know since all of this is uh, an exercise in relatively futile cross trial comparison, um, looking at the cytokine release syndrome rates and the neurotoxicity rates are important um, both to know just from the study perspective, but also because that's what people are going to talk about when they try to distinguish one agent from another. I don't think anyone's really going to argue that. Uh, the different products are going to have a different cure rate probably. Right. Um, and so they are going to say the, mine is better tolerated. Yeah. I think that's the, one of the biggest selling oh, yeah. points people are going to make. And um, um, yeah, so in, in the Zuma one study, they used the Lee criteria um, and those are um, more aggressive uh, in terms of their staging or their grading of CRS. So if you needed low dose pressors, you only had grade two CRS. I see. Like all grade two events, just a touch yes, of pressors. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I of see. course, um, that's interesting. So yeah. you're saying that these studies use different CRS scoring criteria. I, how come I didn't know that? Yeah. I thought I, I and thought then I'm the, um, the Kimraya, the TISA cell, since that's the Novartis product that um, relates to pen and the CAR T cells. They use the pen criteria, where low dose pressors gave you uh, grade three. Criteria. So this is because CRS is not in the original CTCAE, so it's a modification of CTCAE. Yeah, is that is that how they're doing this? Exactly. Yeah. I see. Fascinating. So I see you also have a column here: tocilizumab use. Now, my understanding is tocilizumab is it a good drug or a great drug for SARS-CoV-2? I would say neither. 
we're, we're not using it at our institution for, for, for That's COVID. because it has a negative randomized trial from Genentech. But that didn't stop people from saying they gave it and the patient did better. So when people give tocilizumab post-CAR-T, what level of evidence do they have to give that drug? Um, they have some case series in blood comparing the cytokine profile from HLH to CRS from CAR-Ts. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, no prospective data that yeah. I've come across. I know. I find uh, it interesting. So I guess yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if someday somebody randomized to tocilizumab and they found that it actually doesn't have any net benefit. I know they're going to kill me because they're going to say the IL-6 levels are uh, order of magnitude higher than it is in SARS-CoV-2. Uh, but uh, still, I think it's still just bioplausible. So don't write me, people, and tell me that. I know it. I know I know the IL-6 levels, but still, I'm not sold. Okay, go on, go on, go on. You yeah. So this is a nice so this is a nice thing to note, which is that you believe the distinguishing characteristic of lisocell, the the way people get it in people's veins is to say that our toxicity profile is more favorable, but your point is that different trials use different scoring profiles. Yeah. Fair to say? So, yeah, so the um you know, I I think how patients fall on either of the grade 2 to grade 3 uh, dividing line, and then we look at those grade three or higher percentages, um, is really really has to be taken with a grain of salt, um, and especially since different criteria are being used uh, between these studies. Um, and also, um, you know, the, the, the study doesn't describe it really, but the management of CRS has evolved since uh, the, mm -hmm. the first studies enrolled with, with the CAR-Ts. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we can we can both wish there were better data for tocilizumab and when to implement steroids and at what tapers to, of steroids mm -hmm. to use. But um, when CAR-Ts started, people didn't know how to handle this. Correct. And that's how you Correct. got all the cerebral Correct. edema that people um, were suffering Correct. from that led to um, clinical hold. So, um, so I think that's you're an important right. factor you're, as well. Yes, you're, you're being very balanced. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Okay, let's see what you got here. Transcend. Yeah, yeah. tell us about yeah. it. Yeah, so let's move into the, the, the meat here. So Transcend, NHL, 001, multi-center, uh, multi-cohort, seamless, uh, quote-unquote, phase one design mm -hmm. study uh, conducted at 14 centers in the U.S. Uh, for full disclosure, WashU and Barnes-Jewish Hospital did not participate in that, so I have mm -hmm. definitively no um, personal conflict of interest. And I haven't taken care of a patient getting this agent. I've taken care of patients getting... Both Kim, either Kimraya and uh, Carter. So, I, that I, so that's a serious COI, huh? Yeah, the reverse. The, <laughs> the reverse. reverse COI. Yeah, yes. you get the reverse COI. Yeah. You're never going to be um, a KOL with that attitude, my friend. What's never. the matter? You can't do a little consulting for the company before you present on this podcast? Come on. Um, so this study, uh, important to note, included patients with relapsed or refractory DLBCL, either de novo or transformed. Uh, patients with high-grade B-cell lymphoma, primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, or follicular grade 3B. Um, they had to have received at least two lines of prior therapy, which must have included a, an anti-CD20 agent and an anthracycline. 
No, that's um, a big, big ask these days, huh? You have to get yeah. rituximab and, and anticycline. I would say that if you didn't get those two, I think I want to have a long chat with your doctor. What the <laughs> hell? What the hell is going on if you're not getting a CD20 antibody and anthracycline? What the hell is going on? I guess the other interesting thing, though, is anthracycline. So the RC ops are going to be excluded. So anyone right. who's got any any cardiac issue, they're going to say, doctor going to get a little scared and not give the anthracycline. And so you're out. Yeah. Um. But I mean, it's interesting. It would also exclude, um, you know, this would exclude a patient, for instance, with transformed follicular who um, got what our you know, uh, CVP or, or, or uh, yeah, BR. Got, got BR. Um, and then when they I mean, I guess they'd have to have had therapy, two at least two lines of therapy. No, so they could get ice. Maybe they could get RBR and then ice R ice. Yeah. So there, there's a subset of, of FL transformed FL patients that wouldn't have met this criteria. I guess I would say, though, it's I mean, I, it's kind of quirky, but I guess, you know what? You should be getting CD20 antibody twice, not just once. What kind of doc, you know, you know what I mean? It should be t two CD20 antibodies. Yeah. Times two. Um, yeah. Okay. All so right, they allowed patients yes. in um, that had had obviously prior autos and um, as well allotransplants. A third of the patients uh, had had or have, have relapsed after autologous stem cell transplant. And what percent they, after allo? Any allos? Um, nine total patients. Three percent. I see. Okay. They had to have been far enough away without GVHD going now, into course. the study. We'll God go to the you want lengthy exclusion criteria. Sure. Um, you know, they try to um, they try to play up a little bit of the uh, end organ dysfunction that they allowed into the study, such as cranium clearance as low as thirty, LVEF as low as forty, um, and they even permitted some secondary CNS involvement. This is the first one I've seen that has allowed that. Um, and did seven have, patients, three percent yeah. had that. Did it have to be treated, or or what? It could nope. actually be progressive. Really, I believe progressive. Yeah, I see. Okay, well, good for them. That's brave. But I guess yeah, going down to an EF of forty percent when they've had to have progressed on anthracycline, I don't know how brave that is. I mean, Not, if they yeah. really were willing to take the the people with CHF, they'd they'd take them low EF and excluded anthracycline. Yeah. But I see, and oh, that was only five percent of the yeah, study okay. population okay. with the EF. So um, what the intervention consists of, as, I, as we've mentioned, the fludarabine and cyclophosphamide uh, lymphodepleting chemotherapy. Um, in their methods, they already mentioned the median time from leukapheresis to lysocell availability for shipment, and that was 24 days on average. But note that upper bound of 51 days there. 51 days? No what shorter the... than 17 days. I see. And then time from pheresis to infusion was 37 days on average range. Mm. 27 to 224. I don't really know what to make of that 224. 224, they had a hell of a response to bridging therapy, and they just stuck with that for a while. Yeah. Look at a histogram for time from leukapheresis to infusion would be very nice. Um, I, I don't think I missed it, but I don't think it was in the supplement because how many patients were over 100? days after yes that's interesting so i guess infusion. I, and let's explain a little bit to the listener like why is this so important that he's dr rustler germain is doing such a wonderful job explaining this is that um you know um this is a study like many car t studies that's going to be modified intention to treat so they're going to drop from the denominator people who were for east who did not get product in all their response rates they're going to drop those people we don't do that with off-the-shelf drugs um it, it, we would never do that but here, the justification for doing that is that, you know, it's going to take a while to turn around the product. The longer it takes to turn around the product and get it in someone's veins, the more people are going to fall off. 
Those people aren't going to be on average the same as the ones who get the cells. They're going to be the ones with the worst biology because that's why in 24 days their disease did not stay under control and they died. Or, you know, they had rip-roaring disease um, that really needed the doctor to do something else. Um, so, in other words, the longer it takes to give you the cells, the more you're selecting for indolent biology. And just to put it in contrast, do you have the numbers off the top of your head for um, tisogenic glucil and axicabotagine, uh, silolucil, or axicel? I think it's 17 and 21, but it's been a while since I looked. You can trust um, me. I don't, I don't have the uh, dates, the the length of time of, uh, I don't have the time of production numbers on the top of my head. You but trust I think me. 17 and 21, I, I think. So I think it's a little, I trust little you. shorter. What yeah, I can yeah. say is that at least 10 to 20% of patients in both the Zuma and Juliet studies um, were not in the response valuable cohort. So um, you can just sort of use those as round numbers of how, how, you're, how you're sort of binning these bins even further. I like to use an analogy called um, the the busy restaurant. You know, there's a nice Seinfeld episode of them waiting for the restaurant. I don't know if you ever saw that, the Chinese restaurant Seinfeld episode. It's a terrific episode. But basically, you have a long wait list for a busy Friday night restaurant. Now, if you and I are really hungry, we sign up for the wait list for a trendy New York City restaurant, and they get to the first hour, we're going to go. You know, we, we can't wait any longer. I got to eat. We're going to get to hour two. More people are going to leave. The people who are still on the wait list, hour three and four, those are the people who go in the second wait room. So this is how all the CAR-T trials, they go in the second wait room where they collect their information and then they wait to see who gets seated. And there's another wait period of time where people are not going to make it to the dinner. And so by the time you get to the dinner to go to this restaurant, the only people who are getting seated and served are people who weren't that hungry to begin with. And so here in my analogy, hunger is aggressive biology. Um, the wait list is analogous to the CAR-T um, clinical trial wait list that they often have to go down to enroll patients uh, to forese them. And then the second wait room is the time to make the cells. How do you like my analogy? I think it's a perfect analogy. It's very fair. Um, you know, it's a gradient across the whole spectrum, of course. But, um, you know, you have to be prepared for these waits if this product yes. is going to be for you. Um, yes. So have you been to Momofuku in uh, New York City? It's reminds me. I have been to Momofuku Co. in New York City. That's right. Isn't it good? Um, Isn't it it's good? pretty awesome. Yeah. Pretty good. I would be wait. I have to go eat before I get in line, so I can wait for two hours to get my real food. Yeah. No, the, a reservation and uh, payment there was a wedding gift from a good friend of hers. That is a nice friend. And so the bridging therapy in the analogy would be an appetizer. That's right. While you wait, that's the bridging therapy. And sometimes but if you eat so much of the appetizer, might be... it might be enough to fill you up. <laughs> yeah, it, might be it, yeah. it could be some mints or it could be a cheesesteak. Um, there's a lot of variation. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. See, I was trying. You uh, you haven't been falling for my foolish comments. So now you, you've joined me in this club. Okay, good. Okay, good, good, good. All right, go on to the next part. Go on to the next part. Yeah. Um, so regarding the bridging therapy, a lot of caveats here. Limits on how, many how much steroids you can get how um, soon between phoresis and infusion you could have got lymphotoxic agents, mm -hmm. um, a lot of caveats regarding immunosuppressive agents, mm -hmm. um, and then a lot of details about having um, confirmed pet-positive disease after your bridging therapy. Um, so yeah, a laundry guess, list of things you'd have to avoid. I guess i just say on that pet-positive, we do know, though, some people with lymphoma, 
um, the pets lag behind the actual response. So sometimes you still have pet positivity and they're actually like rid of disease. So yeah. I'm not sure persistent pet positivity is like the best thing, but I see their point is to prove that you still have disease after, uh, after uh, lymphodepletion therapy, or yeah. sorry, after bridging therapy. Yeah, I think you have to do it, but um, that caveat is very important. So primary endpoint, this was a phase one study, adverse event profile, dose limiting toxicities, and then a third was overall response rate, Lugano criteria applied here, secondary endpoints for counting their CRs, duration of response, PFS, OS, et cetera. Um, they had many different subsets of patients to analyze the efficacy of valuable set, the primary analysis set, and, inten and intention to treat sets. Mm -hmm. So they're at least trying. Um, and we can talk about uh, how all that pans out. So 344 patients underwent leukapheresis. 50 did not receive their products, 33 of which passed away prior to um, being able to get their products. 294 patients got CAR T cells, 25 of which were not conforming according to the uh, number of cells and or precise ratio of CD4 to CD8 cells. And so 269 patients um, were received a, a conforming product received a conforming product a conforming but, product yes but out of 269 receiving a conforming product only 256 were able to be included in the efficacy evaluable set due to issues with their uh timing of their pet scans uh pre and post -bid bridging therapy and I three see. other reasons not specified i see so when i give a, a lecture to a 300 person class i like to say anyone who didn't sit through my entire lecture we just have to omit them from my uh, reviews. Um, and then I like to say, anyone who didn't get a conforming lecture, by that I mean a lecture where where they listened intently with eyes and ears for at least 50% of the time, I exclude their evaluations as well. And then I just go with the evaluations of the people who made it through my entire lecture and were smiling at me the whole time. What do you think about my methods for learning how good a teacher I am? I suspect you'll be uh, getting evaluations from everyone in the front row who doesn't look <laughs> at ESPN or their email on their laptops during class. It's a few people, yeah. Okay, but the the point is 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 similar, yeah. Okay, go on. So this um, is good. So yeah. as far as which patients were uh, in this study, um, I think one one notable detail is that sixty seven percent were chemotherapy refractory. Um, that that. that that's, that's good to know. Good to see that they're, that they're treating patients that hadn't been responding to prior lines of therapy. Um, a quarter of them had LDH over 500. Um, a quarter of them had a sum of product diameters on their scans greater than 50 centimeters. Um, they were all, for the most part, ECOG 1 to 2. Um, and there was a you know, majority of patients with DLBCL and then uh, the other histologies with somewhere between 5 to 10% each. Ages roughly between 50s to 70s. Yeah, I guess I would say the only thing that catches my eye about chemorefractory is that, I mean, I think you're right that you want to use this product, you want to test this product in people who are refractory to, i.e. they don't have tumor shrinkage with cytotoxic drugs. Every once in a while, like you might get a follicular lymphoma patient, you give them BR, they transform, you give them R-CHOP, um, and then they grow through R-CHOP. Sometimes you give those people R-ICE and their tumors start to shrink. So I guess like chemo refractory, it all depends on how much drugs you give and what drugs you give. Sometimes it's just chemo refractory to CHOP, but not refractory to RICE or RDHAP or something a little more aggressive. Yeah, certainly not with the platinum agents. That's right. right. Platinum, um, platinum changes the, yeah, changes the tune. Changes yeah. the game. Yeah. And then important also from table one, 59% of patients in the, 59% uh, of patients who received the product um, had bridging therapy.
Mm, so okay. a good bit, the majority. Good bit, yeah. Um, they move on to report um, objective response rates and other um, and and CR rates relative to a number of co- um, covariates, and they have three dose levels in this study, um, sort of doubling the number of cells they gave people. And they had said it all settled on dose level two during an interim analysis um, due to its improved overall response rate relative to dose level one being 74% to 67%. Um, and dose level three only was at 73% response rate. So they called it a wash. Um, as far as um, CRs go in this dose level two, it was 52%. Um, numerically higher actually in the dose level one at 60%, but uh, mm-hmm. all those uh, confidence intervals overlap there. Mm-hmm. And what's this SPD? So SPD is some product of the diameters, um, literally measuring the physical bulk of one's disease on their scans. Um, that, uh, what, was the average, what was the average SPD in, in the last lymphoma clinic you were in? So it's funny you ask. I actually looked up whether this is even reported in the majority of trials, let alone in clinical practice. And you <laughs> don't measure this thing. Um, you know, you guy. can, yeah, you can exactly. gestalt it certainly. And I think yeah. what's important to think about is, you know, they've been at greater or less than 50 centimeters. But if you have a patient who say meets the GELF criteria with three lymph nodes of three centimeters or more, you know, three by three is nine plus three by three is nine plus three by three nine so that's you know you get to 27 centimeters just from gelf uh, pretty quick and that's that's just gelf criteria so what and what's gelf um, stand for it's a french phrase that i will butcher um <laughs> i think it's, it's grupo etudes lymphoma francophone or something like that a yeah. folliculi or something F- yeah. folliculi f- I, yeah. oh grupo etudes folliculi whatever french i don't know french i only know spanish okay okay sorry that was a unfair question on my part yeah so um, I think what you're pointing out is that there's a really um, market difference in the CR rate between the patients that had bulkiest disease versus least bulky disease. Um, in the patients with an SPD over 50 centimeters, their CR rate was in the 30% range compared to over 60% in the patients with lower burden of disease. Yeah. Um, and that actually looks world- like, yeah. No, I was going to say, like, sometimes you look at forest plots and everyone's like, well, this one crosses one and this one doesn't. You know, here, of course, these are just like uh, response rates. Um, In other words, what I'm trying to say is many people look at forest plots and there is no interaction. You look at this forest plot, uh, the CR forest plot, and it looks like there's some relationship between how much tumor you have and how deep the response goeth. Yeah, exactly. And the same is true um, with response to last therapy. Those that were refractory to their prior therapy did have a lower overall response rate and CR rate. That's true. Mm, I see. I don't, oh, oh, I see. Yeah, you're right. I didn't see that. Okay, okay. Go on. Fascinating. Um, so since this is a streamlined, or seamless, I should say, phase one trial, um, tables two through four are the uh, toxicity profiles. Um, a lot of cytopenias, not entirely surprising. Um, the real uh, meat here is the CRS, cytokine release syndrome rate, and the neurological event rate. Um so CRS of any grade only happened in 42% of patients. Grade three or higher was just in 2% of patients as far as uh, neurologic and wh- events. Which definition is this using? The Lee definition or the Penn definition? This is the Lee criteria. 
So that's the one that overcalls so could, or undercalls. That that undercalls CRS. Is it isn't that the one that undercalls Lee, CRS? Lee can have grade two CRS if you're put on pressers. So I see. I would say that's so if you're undercalling. Only, so it's undercalling. So if you're that, only I mean, um saying, well, only two percent had three or grade three or four CRS, well, that those are only two percent of people needed high dose or multiple vasopressors, great. Um, now there are O2 requirement criteria and yes, yes. higher organ toxicity that can get you into that category. Um, but it definitely, um, as you're saying, will undercall CRS, um, because they're pulling everyone that got low dose pressors into grade two. I see. But despite that caveat, you're willing to say, stake your entire, entire career ahead of you that this product has lower CRS. I will say that the patients in this study had less CRS than those in the other study. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. I like it. Okay, well Very put. Political. I mean, I think, I, I guess I would say that not only is that what the data here show, that's also what people have anecdotally told me. That's what you've heard as well, right? That this product goes down smooth. I have not actually spoken to a physician that has administered this product. So I'm not biased by that. But what I will say is that my experience giving AxiCell and uh, TisoCell, the Yascarta and Kimraya products, is that that CD28 versus 41BB co-stimulatory domain does have a correlation with um, time to onset of CRS. The earlier the co-stimulatory activation is happening, the earlier and perhaps more aggressive CRS that you're going to get, like with Yascarta. um, And whereas in the Kimraya product, where it's a more of a late activation signal, it's more, it goes down smoother. Um, and I will I say, um, I, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but we have attendings that um, will pick product for patients based on what they think they can tolerate in terms of mm, balancing response rate in theory versus CRS rate in theory. Interesting. I guess I would say, although I've heard people say this, I'm always very skeptical when people tell me something, quote, goes down smooth. I always have a lot of fun. I'm the type of person who I'm not going to like, that's not going to sit well with me. Um, and I'm going to want to know where they heard it. And typically it's at a dinner that I don't approve of. But I see your point is an excellent point, which is that it is entirely biologically plausible that choice of co-stimulatory domain does play a role in how these cells work and how and whether and what degree they have cytokine release syndrome. So I think that's a good point. We will know more. Actually, probably never. We'll never have a head-to-head trial, but we may learn something more in the randomized studies. Yeah. I think what what would really hit me when I started taking care of patients receiving CAR T's was how yeah. CRS felt more run of the mill BMT management. We're, yes. we're dealing with infections, neutropenic fever all the yes. time. Yes. Patients also, I think, can understand a flu-like reaction that you then kind of sell up to low blood pressure, oxygen requirement, um, those types of manifestations. I think it's really hard to describe to patients how hard the neurologic toxicities can hit them, even if they're, they're in a minority of patients, obviously um, less than 10% in this study that had grade three or higher. But I mean, you can have a, 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 a walking, talking patient go nonverbal, non-ambulatory for 30 days sometimes in this situation. And it's hard to really prepare families to see that. Um, so so I, I think it takes a good doctor to explain um, the rare but also um, extremely scary side effects from a neurologic perspective that people can see. Yeah, I mean, I guess I want to echo that. Uh, 
I think you're absolutely right to point out that neurological side effects, sometimes severe side effects can occur with these products, and that has to be part of the counseling. I mean, I've heard of things from people who have had difficulty walking for a long period of time, even after receiving products, people whose counts have not recovered fully, people who have all sorts of sequelae, including being um, disoriented, uh, not alert to place and time for huge periods of time. And and these are unusual um, side effects that are only due to, to my knowledge, to, to chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. Um, so take us through the last, uh, the main points you want to get across in, in, in the in the Yeah, I think, yeah. I think some, um, an important thing to think about as, as far as we start integrating these agents into our treatment algorithms is um, the difference between a CR and a PR with CAR-Ts yes. is really amplified compared to other therapies. And so um, the figure three of the paper shows that if you have a PR, um, the durability of that response, 20% are lasting longer than three months. Um, you pretty much lose that PR in a hurry. Um, CRs about um, maybe a quarter, a third of the CRs are um, lost in that three-month time frame as well, but the remainder can be very durable beyond even a year or two. So um, I think it's a it's a it's hypothesis generating with this and the other studies. You know, are these patients being cured of their disease? It's possible. Um, but for this sort of multi-hundred-thousand-dollar therapy, that's sort of a one-and-done approach, um, when you relapse after CAR-T, when you only had a PR, um, you've invested a lot, and now you're out the other end, sort of right back where you started um, yeah. without disease control. And so it's just a different way of thinking about it than with yeah. some of the other, other ther yeah. salvage therapies we have. And then, um, you know, even with complete responses um, factored in sort of how we how we look at the overall survival from this from this cohort it is it is better than what you know scholar and other studies would report um, we're in the median of 18 months or so from the total cohort 21 months um, but there are a, a good number of patients that are in the single digit uh, survival range even with CAR-T's Somebody should do Scholar and take the Scholar data set and then put them through all the inclusion criteria of this study. Like to put Scholar and say how many people went 21 days without therapy and all those, you know, all those rules into Scholar um, uh, and see how and, and then take that cohort and look at their survival. It would just be interesting because you're right. Yeah. It, 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 it's like apples and oranges a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That has been done with some of the other CAR-T products. Um, I, I don't know the references off the top of my head, but it's interesting um, another key thing that this study broke down for us is response and survival by uh, histological subtype. And uh, the supplement really el elegantly shows that the transformed follicular patients and those with primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, um, they don't reach their median uh, PFS um, after treatment with this, whereas the DLVCL high-grade uh, B-cell lymphoma patients um, Median PFS in the in that cohort is um, only about half a year, frankly. That's, that's so um, even though there's a really nice plateau or asymptote, I should say, in that 35, 40 percent range in the DLBCL and high grade B cell lymphoma cohorts, um, and that's awesome. We don't see that with you know most other salvage therapies. The um, when you're thinking medians, um, you got to look in supplemental figure S3 to really compare this agent to the scholar data, for instance. That's a good point. 
Um, we've talked about a bit about bridging therapy. Um, a lot of patients receive Vertuximab, Gemox, Dexamethasone. Um, some even got Ibrutinib, Lenalidomide, et cetera. Um, I think what's helpful that this study actually gives us a little bit of a breakdown is how much uh, the burden of disease shifted for these patients between their um, bridging therapy uh, pre and post. They have a nice little plot there. Um, a lot of patients didn't have super high burden. That's fair, uh, one thing to say. But um, And then um, I mean, we could come back to cost effectiveness. Um, nice study in the JCO um, looking at the um, quality adjusted life years um, for the two currently approved Giscarda and Camrya agents compared to things like allogeneic stem cell transplant. Um, they, they would argue that um, all things considered, these drugs, which are right now in the $370,000 range, not including uh, the hospitalization costs and um, some of the preparatory workup, um, these drugs should really be priced more in the $100,000 to $150,000 range, if not even uh, $200,000 range. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as with everything, how to extrapolate from a clinical study to your real-world population. Um, the Iscarda agent, the AxiCell agent, um, nice data from um, the U.S. Lymphoma CAR-T Consortium, which our institution is part of, um, described our standard of care use for this agent. Um, I mean, I've taken care of patients, you know, in their 80s getting this agent um, who are in this analysis, um, some with great responses, some without. And, um, you know, the majority of patients in the real world are getting... Um, bridging therapy leading up to this, uh, leading up to CAR-T administration. Go to the next slide. I'm curious. Yeah. So what are the real world? Okay. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. The capital curves on the, in the real world, wow. uh, axi cell data, I think are interesting because they break it down by performance status going yeah. into CAR-T. Um, there are patients in the real world getting CAR-T at PS of four. Um, so when you break down from PS of zero to one versus two to four, the uh, the OS is markedly different. The PFS is markedly different. Um, patients, I guess the uh, other thing that jumps out at me is like the OS, if your PS is two to four, like on that OS plot B, like I'm not convinced that there's a plateau in that curve. And even plot D, like if your LDH abnormal high, if your ab yeah. LDH abnormal, I'm not convinced there's a plateau, which is really concerning. Like, I mean, I think these drugs, whether or not they're worth it, one of the prerequisites to that discussion is that there's a curative fraction. Um, and if, if there are sub, if there are cohorts, subgroups where it's not a curative fraction, I think, you know, given the real side effects of it, I think some serious, and, and the fact that there are all alternatives. I mean, there are, you know, 25, 40 regiments in DLBCL that one could give that are also not curative. So, you know, why would you want to give the hardest one, I guess, if it's not curative? Yeah, I, I think that's the other a, cohort looks curative. I mean, yeah. that's a very valid point. And, you know, we don't have a great um, scatter plot comparing PS at, at time of treatment to age, for instance. So yes, are yes. the PS two, three and four patients, yes. the late 70s, early 80s patients that even if yeah. they were cured, maybe they're not going to live that long and or have a um, harder time being cured. But, um, you know, I... I I'd want to draw the analogy to how we counsel patients about autologous stem cell transplants. There was some nice Twitter conversation about um, citing patients' uh, mortality rates from an auto um, and some of the toxicities a few weeks ago. And I, and I draw the parallel here that um, treatment-related mortality, yes, is um, 
low, probably in like the single digit range. Um, ICU stay, 33% real world. Um, 33%. 33% real world. And I, I, that would align with my anecdotal experience as well. Yeah, so, my experience um, you know, that will reflect the inability to give these agents in the community <clears throat> to a certain degree. Um, yeah. There are some studies trying to give these agents outpatient. Yeah. I am nervous. I don't know if I would have a loved one right now get this as an outpatient. Um, oh, yeah. That's a nerve wracking. Okay. So here's my view yeah. on these products. I guess I would say, um, I think, uh, I, I, I guess I would say, um, there, there are definitely some people in whom I've considered it and referred and, and we've, we've given them. Um, and I guess I would say it, as you note, it's not a walk in the park. Um, there's a rare, bad, weird, long side effect thing. The long hauler thing that people talk about with COVID, there's a long hauler CRS, you know, and it ain't pretty. Um, that's something people need to be aware of. Um, I, I personally don't think right now it should be coming before auto. I think you got to get an auto before you get this. So I don't like that two thirds didn't have an auto. I think if you can, this is harder to take than an auto. So if you can take this, you can take an auto. Um, I think that sometimes people are quick to say someone is chemo refractory clinically when a few months ago or a couple of years ago before we had these products, we wouldn't so easily throw up our hands like chemo refractory. We would try a different, you know, chemotherapy mm -hmm. um, combination. And and I think our ICE and our DHAP and even our GDP, you know, we have some randomized trials in that space of what's the best salvage agent. I'll leave that to other people to, to fight over. But I think you can sometimes get people with one or the other when you couldn't get them there the first time. Um, the ongoing randomized trials of randomization to CAR T versus auto, I think will be super interesting. I look forward to that. And I guess I would say as as much as I've kind of been critical I do think that um, it probably does have a role. The role would be the young person post-auto with rip-roaring disease that, you know, still good performance status who um, uh, is truly chemo-refractory, like that this tumor is not shrinking um, yeah. or you can't quite get to auto. Those are the people I think about it. The ones I struggle with are, as you point out, the 80-year-old people. Um, I do struggle to even to know if this is really helping anybody or just um really prolonging suffering um yeah like yeah 80 years old yeah. and ecog too yeah yeah i think the patient like you're saying you know if they have clbcl they get their r chop they yeah. progress through that they go to our ice and they have they grow between PR. cycles they grow between cycles on our ice you know when that happens yeah. you're like oh my god they're growing between the doses like that's the yeah. person you're like okay I and gotta then get you're saying why didn't yeah. i start an aloe workup yes exactly yes yes that's the I mean, person this is the person that you yeah. find some bridging therapy that you think can work and yeah. you can get soon and you hope that the you know tail to the chemo refractory pfs and os curves for this uh for this agent are, are in, fall in your favor that the 30 to 50 percent prolonged uh crs in the chemo refractory population um help your patient here and you spare him any risk of GVHD and all of the other transplant mortality issues. That is well said. I'm going to, I'm going to leave it there because 
I have to go to another meeting, but also because you did such a wonderful job explaining. And I guess I want to thank you for coming on. This is a tough one to get through. I mean, in terms of Journal Club, because um, there's no control arm. So, you know, you're really doing a nice job of appropriately comparing and contrasting, but not overplaying your hand. I think you nicely tread that line that you're not saying these are equivalent. And the way you answer that question was so good you could be in a presidential <laughs> debate. I mean, that was a work of genius. And uh, I'd love to have you back in the future because I want to talk to you also about that really interesting paper you sent me that I didn't fully understand about ependymoma and non-mutation-based um, cancer, uh, uh, that and, and epigenetics, because you probably understand that better yeah. than I do. Um, but was, yeah, this was, was terrific. That was what I worked on before. That's right. Oh, yeah. it was. But yeah, I'd love to be back anytime. Happy to talk about um, cancer genomics or anything BMT or lymphoma-oriented. Yeah. This is terrific. So, Dr. Rustler Germain, so bottom line um, on, on this product, um, how many thumbs up are you giving it? One thumb up, two thumbs up, or you sound like a one thumb up kind of person on this. I'm a one thumb up kind of guy. One thumb up. I, and I, I'll take it. I think that's a, that's a very fair and balanced view. So I think you took us through a number of important teaching pearls here uh, and shows how one should analyze an uncontrolled study, which is a different sort of analytical sets, uh, skill set. So thanks so much for doing it, and we're gonna we're gonna see you again in the future for future for future journal club. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klosner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.